I mean, what's my football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that Talk about the game, Sam. So, Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo, somewhat here with Sam Monson. We're reviewing all of the week 14 action sam it was not the most eventful day of football but uh, almost got salvaged by a couple of those four o'clock games bills and the bengals uh getting things into overtime in their respective games yeah it was a, it was a weird game or weird weekend of football where almost all the games were pretty terrible and then what three of them yesterday kind of all of a sudden there was a comeback mounted it became a game a couple went to overtime and sort of salvaged what was a pretty rough Sunday's worth of, of games. But, yeah, it was a, a bizarre weekend where a huge portion of it, there was just never a doubt of the result, like for, of any of them. You know, we were watching um, the, the Red Zone channel, and these games are just predetermined. Like, this is the way they're going. This is, this is how they've gone. Yeah, there were a lot of uh, implications in a lot of the games this week, as we mentioned in the preview game. But yeah, uh, a lot of them got out of hand early on. Before we get into it, though, don't forget the promo code is NFL pod. You get 25 percent off any PFF subscription using that promo code. And Sam, I saw you tweeting out the other day. You've got a, an extra special deal for anybody that uses this. Yeah, anyone on the fence about signing up, um, remember, to any uh, any PFF subscription, so not just the annual ones, but PFF's uh, Edge or Elite monthly as well, the NFL pod promo code will get you 25% off anything, and anyone that signs up that way um, and DMs me the email address that they use, so on Twitter, at PFF underscore Sam, if you DM me the email that you used, I'm going to give away an NFL jersey uh, of, you know, the winner's choice at some point, probably the end of this week. So you've got a week to sign up to some kind of PFF, um, Edge or Elite. DM me the email address you use so we can check that you actually did it. uh, And then I'll give away a jersey. And also, you know, if you haven't yet, go and follow the new uh, podcast Twitter account at PFF NFL Pod, and we will give away this book to somebody that follows by the end of the week as well. So at the end of this week, there will be two things, a jersey and uh, Bill Polian's book in the mail. Tis the season, Sam. We're just all sorts of giveaways right now here in the month of December. So yeah, go and, uh, go and do that. All right, let's get into some of the action. Let's start with, uh, we, already di- we already discussed Thursday Night Football on the PFF NFL Daily the Minnesota Vikings beat the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, ages ago, 36-28 to in quite a crazy game. Let's get into the Sunday action. I want to start with the Browns, 24-22 to over the Baltimore Ravens. Another one of those games that you know looked like the Browns were pulling away, but some craziness at the end. Uh, of course, Lamar Jackson gets hurt early after just a handful of snaps, only had four throws and a couple runs in there. 
uh, gets hurt on essentially a screen pass. He's trying to create some room on a screen, and uh, Jeremiah Wusukaramoa. It was I don't know if it was the low hit, but uh, either way, Lamar had a uh, a low ankle sprain. I believe is the uh, early diagnosis. Uh, but the Browns pull off the win, twenty four to twenty two. They move to seven and six. Browns fall to eight and five. Your thoughts on this game, and then Lamar's injury with Tyler Huntley coming in in relief. Well, my initial thought on the Lamar thing is all this stuff we're doing to protect quarterbacks and, you know, you can't touch them after the play, you can't fall on them, you can't hit them too hard or it's just mean and we throw a flag. Like, all of this stuff we're doing to protect quarterbacks and that was okay? Like, a kind of guy late in the play diving at his ankles and grabbing hold of him as he goes down. I mean, look, okay, you don't have to go back very far where that's just a routine play and tough luck and on you go and I'm <clears throat> I'm not saying it's a uh, like it was a dirty play or anything by JOK but in this world of hyper sensitivity to protection for quarterbacks that felt like one that I'm amazed they kind of let go and it cost it cost the Ravens Lamar for the day um, so I mean that was my initial reaction now what did you think of that hit yeah I thought um, it was a weird play too because all Lamar Lamar wasn't like trying to scramble or anything. He was just trying to buy time to throw the screen pass, which is a pretty common play. Uh, it was odd because the the screen got kind of thrown off from a timing standpoint. But yeah, usually usually a low dive is is getting the flag. We see that a lot. We see defenders blocked into the low dive and and essentially getting the flag, which is wrong. But I'm saying in this particular instance. Yeah, I could see where they should have uh, should have thrown the flag. But um, Lamar gets hurt, and Tyler Huntley comes in. There's some good, some bad. I mean, he's always been an intriguing backup. I know you fell in love with him during the preseason. Uh, he's done some nice stuff as a spot starter right now, but clearly that was a, a huge impact in this game. And the, but, the, but the Ravens still almost made the comeback. A lot of people are talking about that decision that Jim Harbaugh made, down nine to go for two. Uh it ended up being a good game, but the Browns really needed this, and they did pull it off. Yeah, just about. I mean, they were, what, 17 up. Baker throws an interception right to Anthony Everett, some kind of miscommunication on the play. But it did seem at times that, you know, Baker was <laughs> Baker was throwing the ball like he had money on the Ravens to cover at some point. It's just this game is in hand. You're 17 up. Like, just don't screw it up. Um, and they were trying to screw it up. Then, yeah, like they were, they were, what, 24 6 up, and, and Huntley fumbles in the red zone. Should have been like completely game over, but the, the Ravens just kept chipping away at this, and it, it kind of required, you know, Miles Garrett being an absolute freak and it had the, the strip sack sort of trifecta scoop and score. Did exactly the same thing uh, in terms of the way he beat the great Alejandro Villanueva. Uh, I might need to take the great away from him. We, it might be time to lose the adjective I think for Villanueva. But he beat him with the exact same move, didn't get the strip sack out of it, but was so was such a good replica of the strip sack play that I honestly thought it was a replay of that until the ball didn't come out, you know, until right. like, oh, hang on, there's no fumble at the end of this. It was so clean and such a good win on the edge that, like, Honestly, you could make the case that Miles Garrett was the difference. I mean, when you legitimately score a touchdown all because of of you, you know, we've talked about 
so Trayvon Diggs in the Defensive Player of the Year conversation has all these interceptions, and everybody's talking about these big plays he's making. When Miles Garrett has a strip sack, recovery, and returns it for a touchdown, talk about a positive EPA play right there. I mean, that was incredible, and again, you know, ended up being, uh, perhaps depending on how you break it down, the difference in the game for the Browns. I, I want to discuss this this two point conversion attempt because again there's there's a lot of discussion. I thought John Harbaugh did a really nice job explaining after the game. You're down nine, so they they score a touchdown to go uh, to get within nine, twenty four to fifteen, and it's the fourth quarter. There's uh, six or seven minutes left in the game, and the Ravens go for two. Now when you're down nine, of course, in your head you're like, wait, just once you kick the extra point, you'll be down eight. It'll be a one score game. This is the obvious play that everybody makes but instead the Ravens go for two do you want to you know take a stab at explaining why and whether or not you uh, agree with it well yeah like so the debate is essentially when do you want you you're going to need a two-point conversion at some point if you want to win the game so the question is when do you when do you want to take that shot do you want to leave it to the very end so that's the last thing you do um, you know, get to the point where you need the two-point conversion and then figure it out? Or do you want to take that shot as early as humanly possible because if you don't get it, you actually have a chance of doing something about it? That, that's basically the difference. It's do you want to get everything done first and then leave the game up to a do-or-die two-point conversion? Or do you want to take the shot at the two-point early so that if you don't get it, you actually do have a chance, albeit a slim one, to then get the extra score that you're going to need if you don't get the two-point conversion. Yeah, and, it, and that strategy almost worked. I mean, because of that, so so the Ravens don't get the two-point conversion. They're still down nine. The traditional football debate, I think, that um, a lot of people still don't necessarily get is that, you know, they say, well, you're, uh, you know, your team's not going to try as hard. You know, you're not going to, uh, you're going to, you're going to feel bad that you're down two scores instead of one score. Uh, but the Ravens almost made the comeback in part because, yeah, they're running, uh, you know, they're spiking it with under two, with over two minutes left. I mean, they were running their their hurry up offense properly uh, because they knew they were down two scores. Where again, you know, the point is if if bad stuff happens late, if you don't get the two point conversion at the very end of the game, you've got no shot other than maybe a prayer of an onside kick. So. Uh, either way, it didn't end up, I mean, the Ravens don't end up winning. I think strategically, this happened in another game too, but strategically it is the right play. Um, but yes, they fall short, 24-22. to 22. Um, I thought overall Baker played well. I know he threw the ball into harm's way a couple times, but that interception was a complete miscommunication with him and Jarvis Landry. Uh, there were some weird plays, but overall the Browns, they, we've seen them do this before, get up and then kind of let teams back into it, but... They needed this win. They're back in the playoff picture. See Steve Kornacki? They weren't even in the playoff picture before. Now they are. At the yeah, end of the day. Just big, going, big day the going back to the two-point conversion thing. Like, yes, it, it, if you the, the bottom line is if you miss the two-point conversion going in either direction, whether you take it early or you take it late, if you miss it, you're in trouble. The, so, you know, the people that would say, well, you, you, you leave it to the very end so that you can actually get in the position to win the game, like – yeah, if, if you miss it and you're now in a position where it's two scores, okay, it might be it, – it's not good, right? You're, you're in a bad spot, whatever happens. But at least if you went for it early, there is now a chance to do something about it. If you, if you wait for it to the very end and you miss it, the game's over. It's done. So, yeah, like, 
it's definitely going to be demoralizing to miss the two-point conversion, know that you now have a two-score game or you need to score twice again. But the bottom line is if that is the thing that's going to demoralize your team and make make you not capable of, of winning, you probably don't deserve to win the game anyway. Like If you're going to get bummed out by the fact that it's now a two-score deficit, not a one-score deficit, <clears throat> you don't deserve to win the game. So give yourself the extra chance of actually fixing things if you don't get that one play. It also feels like it's a pretty simple explanation to your team, right? I mean, if you just communicate with your team, look, when these situations come up, here's how we're going to approach it because this is what the numbers say is the right play here, right? I mean, this is going to increase our win probability. That's a good thing. We all want to win the game. And it doesn't mean, you know, play defense less hard than you normally would. You got to play just as hard because you got to make the same number of stops defensively. You still have to get the ball back. You have to do all the same things that you normally would do in that situation. So um, it is one of those things. Look, it took me a, a couple minutes to uh, to figure this out too, Sam. I mean, like just a, a few years ago, when you start to think about it a little bit more logically, I think we're trained to believe get to the one-score game, get to the tie. This is one of those things that has uh, – my thinking had to change on it a couple years ago. So I understand people that aren't completely on board with it yet, but you do have to uh, – I think when you think it through – uh, it does make sense to uh, to go for two in, in these situations, and that uh, there are other situations as well where going for two is just a, just a better play in the long term. Either because you either you have more information or you get that slight edge in in win probability. So, um, as I said, Browns moved to seven and six. Anything else from this game that stood out? Huntley played. Huntley had some good stuff again in there, but the uh, the fumbles were were rough. Yeah, fumbles were rough, particularly the kind of manner that they happened. Um, I, it's in, he's an interesting backup because he does a lot of good things. You know, some people were remarking that the offense doesn't change when he's in there. Now, that's a good and a bad thing if you think about it. And the one, I think it is a good thing that with a quarterback as unique as Lamar Jackson, you don't have to make a radical shift in the offense if he goes down and Tyler Huntley comes in the way you would if it was, you know, Joe Flacco as your backup. You would have to completely change everything you're doing, which cuts both ways. That's probably an issue for a defense as well who've been preparing for Lamar Jackson and only Lamar Jackson in the week, but it's also not good for your entire offense. You now need to change things on the fly. Um, but it was all, it's also worth making the point that like Tyler Huntley came in and this Ravens offense did not look dramatically different with him at the quarterback as opposed to MVP Lamar Jackson. Like we, We've been talking about how Lamar has not been playing well recently and the, him being in the funk that he's currently in is one of the reasons that Baltimore hasn't been uh, or has been struggling and doesn't look like a great team right now. The fact that his backup came in, didn't play particularly well, and yet things didn't functionally look that different should be quite concerning, I would say, for the Ravens and for how Lamar is playing overall. Yeah, Huntley, uh, he had a fourth down under pressure. One of the best throws of the week. Throws it up to Rashad Bateman, and Bateman did a really nice job stacking the corner, going to get it for a 36-yarder on fourth down. That was a big part of that Ravens comeback. I mean, Huntley did make a, a bunch of those throws. Mark Andrews had some had some big plays in there with 11 catches for 115. Uh, to be honest, this was the most explosive. I don't want to say most explosive, but this was the best we've seen as far as like Andrews plus Bateman kind of working together here. You didn't get as much from Marquise Brown, but yeah, Huntley 
Huntley is good, man. I mean, he was really good at Utah. I don't remember him being as elusive as he was. You know, he's, he does have some of those Lamar-like plays as far as uh, making defenders miss as a runner. So um, definitely a guy that uh, has that potential future as a high-end backup. But uh, Mark Andrews is so good. Like, that guy makes more spectacular one-handed catches than pretty much anybody in the NFL. Almost nothing that goes near him ends up hitting the ground. He's just, for a guy that I don't think is the most special athlete in the world, he makes an incredible amount of really, really good plays. Yeah, for sure. Uh, But you've got the Ravens now. uh, Obviously still very much hashtag in the hunt, but... uh, much less likely now that they're going to be looking at that number one seed that they were very much in the mix for a couple weeks ago. Browns back uh, with the 7-6 and six record. Now, working from home is more important than ever. Optimize your home office with an X-chair and our many accessories to enhance your focus, productivity, energy, and comfort. Once you feel the customized support of X-chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar, there's no going back. It's all in the LMX massage and temperature regulation, exclusively designed and made for the X-chair. With versatile comfort and extraordinary design, X-Chair fits any space. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort, plus, like I said, the massage feature. That's what I love. And the heating feature when it's freezing. Those are all the reasons I love my X-Chair. Now I can't wait to be at work. And sometimes, even when I'm not working, just sit in my X-Chair to get that feeling. So go to the X-Chair NFL Pod. So this is your website here. XChairNFLPod.com. That's the letter X, chair, NFLPOD.com. Or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you could finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. It's X-CHAIR, NFLPod.com. If you're watching on YouTube, check out the link in the description. And, of course, right in front of you, a breakdown of everything. LMX, massage, chair, the X-CHAIR, the different colors and the different ways of customizing it. All great. And uh, I suggest you go check, take a look at XCHAIRNFLPod.com. Did you stay home today just so you could sit there in your X chair rather than this? Just so I could have. Just so I could be in my chair. Extreme comfort. Look at this. Never been more comfortable in my life. I mean, look, I don't blame you. Those chairs are comfortable, but I'm now feeling a little cheated. Get yours into the office. Like I said, no, we we need the barstool one. We need the barstool one at the office. XChairNFLPod.com. All right, let's go to this. uh, Stay in the AFC. Kansas City 48, Las Vegas Raiders 9. This was one of those games. That was, uh, I don't know, supposed to be closer. But the uh, was it the very first snap? Josh Jacobs fumbles, returned for a touchdown, and then things got bad for the Raiders after that. It was a rough start, and then it got even worse. So Kansas City, the, uh, the 2,000 Ravens, the 85 Bears, whatever you want to call them, dominant again defensively. And, and the Raiders did it again. The Raiders again, again, ran into this with the game plan. There's the shiny game plan that everybody's using against Kansas City that's working, slowing their offense down. And the Raiders are looking at that and going, nah, we're good. We're going to roll with us. We're going to roll single high 70% of the time because that's what we do. Like, I mean, come on. Okay, I the first time I can at least see the argument that you don't want to change everything you do to adopt a game plan that other people have been successful with. Particularly when, you know, remember early in the season, the Raiders' defense wasn't terrible, and you could at least see the case that better the devil you know versus this thing that we're not really set up to do or don't do generally. After the first game, though, you have to change what you're doing. You can't possibly just say, well, it didn't work the first time and really didn't work the first time. 
yeah, maybe it'll work again. Let's let's take another swing at this thing. Like the devil you don't know cannot possibly be any worse than this 45 point average you're coughing up every time you roll in there with your regular defense against Kansas City. In the last, what, seven weeks, the Chiefs offense is averaging 14 points against not Raiders teams and 45 against the Raiders. Like, what are you doing on defense? They have more points in two games against the Raiders than they do their other five games combined uh, since their since their loss to the Tennessee Titans, 27-3 back in week seven. So, um, look, again, I think the narrative this week will be, hey, the Chiefs are back. I think there's... I'm not saying it's unfair to say that. Um, I do want to see the Chiefs have success on offense against a non-Raiders team, though. But the the defense, man, it just continues to to really dominate. I mean, we're talking about the defensive fronts. Chris Jones was unblockable once again. That play started that that game, that play I was talking about. Jaron Reed forces the fumble. Mike Hughes returns it for a 24 yarder. We're talking about. Uh, a team that was gashed against the run, busted coverages left and right. Now it feels like it's just just similar to last year. Completing a pass beyond the line of scrimmage is difficult against this Chiefs defense. They've got the pass rush, everything going for them. Um, and then, you know, say what you want about the Raiders defense. I agree. I mean, schematically and all that stuff, they did not make any adjustments. It did help the Chiefs. But it is nice to just kind of see them clicking again. See Mahomes. You know, Mahomes had one big time throw, throw back across his body, kind of, you know, turned back the clock. I like how we talk about Mahomes as this old man who's, uh, you know, lost it and he's and he's like Big Ben turning back the clock. But I think as a Chiefs fan, you just want to see a little bit more of that from Mahomes, uh, the special. But he only had to throw the ball twenty four times in this game. So is it good or bad that the Chiefs are? You have are able to win in these other ways, rather than just relying on their offense. And there's still that element of like, okay, at some point, you know, the offense could be there, and that makes them even more dangerous once you head into the playoffs. No, like I mean, a six-game win streak where you haven't played great with, the, or at least, you know, the element that everybody associates with you, your incredible offense, is not firing in any game. They don't have to face the Raiders like that. It's never a bad thing that you're winning regardless of your flaws. But the question is, like, are there – is this actually for real or when they face um, – when they get to the playoffs, does that change? And is this an indication of a weakness that will be a bigger problem in January than it is in December? And, you know, as much as earlier in the season, the Chiefs' defense statistically was arguably the worst in the entire league. And when you look at kind of who they face, right? Week one, Cleveland, who are 100% healthy, obviously. Baltimore, the Chargers, the Eagles. Like, there's a lot of good offenses they faced earlier in the year. So you were like, well, they're not as bad as their record. They're probably a little bit better than that. Equally, I think, if you look at the run they're on recently, they've only really faced one offense, like, that would cause you any kind of problems. You have the Giants, you have Green Bay, um, who Jordan Love. Right, who didn't have Aaron Rodgers. You have the Raiders, who just are, are a wreck right now. Dallas is the one decent offense they faced. Denver, so and the Raiders again. So they've gone on this run of six games, and yeah, the defenses look like the 85 Bears. On the other hand, like they haven't really faced one good offense in that time. So they're probably not, they weren't as bad as they looked in the first X number of weeks of the season. I don't think they're as good as they look right now. You know, Chris Jones being back inside. Alex Leatherwood is one of the worst offensive linemen in the NFL right now, and that was just a, a, 
a walking mismatch the entire game. The Raiders are down, you know, some of their most important receivers. So the Raiders' offense was just a mess. Like, they, Hunter Renfro had 14 targets in the game, which was more than double anybody else on that offense because there's nobody else to throw to. So at that point, scheming against this offense is relatively simple, particularly when they're going to turn the ball over a bunch of times as well. This was, look, Kansas City win 48-9. It was dominant. It was... Um, really impressive on both sides of the ball. On the other hand, I think they said way more about the Raiders than it did about Kansas City, who <clears throat> who are doing what they they're doing all they can do, right? All you can do is beat the opposition in front of you. I just don't know yet if we actually have any answers about Kansas City in in a broad in broad terms. You know, like where they're gonna they have a good shot of getting the number one seed now, but. Are they anything like the team they've been in the last couple of years? I still don't think we have a good answer to that. I think maybe in that analysis, though, you're underrating the Raiders a touch. Look, I know their offense has not looked great in recent weeks and all that, but um, going into the two games against the Chiefs over these last few weeks, the Raiders did have a pretty good offense. And I know they're trying to... They're still trying to find their way as far as uh, getting the ball down the field with Deshaun Jackson as part of the offense. And it was another game, and I know I tend to oversimplify Derek Carr and the Raiders sometimes, and I'm going to oversimplify it again. 4.2 average depth of target in a game when you're down the entire time, and I, and I know it, football's not as simple as just throw it down the field and you know pray, uh, but when you're down like this, and when you have this, it's another like previous history. How have you beaten the Chiefs before? How did you compete with this offense? If you're going to play defense the way you are, if you're the Raiders. You almost have to expect the Chiefs are going to score some points offensively, and you have to be aggressive and get the ball down the field. But Derek Carr, uh, you know, you mentioned Hunter Renfro had all those catches. It was all the underneath stuff for the Raiders. And again, I know there's a difference between what's available on the field and just you know being blindly aggressive. But I, I'm kind of in between. I think it's impressive that the Chiefs have shut the Raiders down. At the same time, the Raiders are they're just not making their own adjustments on either side of the ball. So the Raiders have lost five of their last six, last six games. They suck right now. I'm not I'm not underrating them at all. They, this is just not a good team. Also, they they don't they don't help themselves. Did you see the thing before the game where they go and do the pregame hype right, talk imagine, on the yeah, logo? Right. Come on, like you have to know that's just a bad idea. You have to like. Where's the That'd be like, like the, the Bears doing it to the Packers, right? Like, oh, you think you own us, Aaron? Like, just just go out there and play. Just go out there. Where's the upside to that? The only thing that can happen is it goes badly. The only thing that can happen is you end up losing and looking like an idiot. If you like, there's no there's no positive to that. Just just don't do it. Yeah, that was uh, a questionable move. <laughs> so. Um, from a Raiders perspective, too, just to wrap that up, they fall to six and seven. Are they a team that just we bought into the to the early season hype, and it, and that's all it was was just a stretch of play, and they've reverted back to again what we thought they would be maybe before the season. They were no, they were better when everybody was healthy and when they had a head coach and when you know they had a, like a deep threat. They have been seriously changed at a foundational level over the course of the season through things that are not really their fault, you know? Right. Like, they don't have a head coach anymore. They have a, an interim guy just trying to keep this thing together with, with duct tape. They lost their first-round deep threat wide receiver who, 
they haven't really replaced yet. I know Deshaun Jackson is there, but it's it's not the same as when you can throw um, Henry Ruggs out there for you know two thirds of the snaps you're going to have on offense. It, it isn't. It's not the same thing right now. Like Deshaun Jackson was only out there for 25 receiving snaps. Um, he had two targets. Like this is not. It's not like for like. Darren Waller isn't playing. He is the guy that that entire offense should be running through when he's out there. So, as I said, like Hunter Renfro was basically your only target yesterday, in which case, of course, you're going to lose. The offensive line is bad. The offensive line was hemorrhaging pressure. And that's one thing I think you can say that, yeah, if you want to point to an area of Kansas City that is definitely different than it was earlier in the season, like Frank Clark all of a sudden has remembered how to play, which is, I mean... Explaining Frank Clark's career is one of the trickier things to try and do over the last few years. This was a guy who, you know, had massive, um, I hate the term like off-field issues. He had what? A domestic violence record when he came into the NFL, which is why he wasn't a first-round draft pick. Um, The Seahawks grabbed him. He looked like one of the best players from his draft class right away, was a potentially dominant force, and then always kind of flashed more than he was consistently dominant. Ends up being traded to the Chiefs and just disappears into a black hole of of irrelevancy. Just doesn't play well at all. Shows up in the playoffs, but only in terms of like um, bottom line production numbers. Like he got sacks at critical times and sort of belied the fact that he still wasn't playing that well, but was definitely playing better in the postseason than the regular season. And then this year was like catastrophically bad for the first half. And all of a sudden, the last few weeks has really like turned it on again, had eight pressures in this game, which is probably the most he's had in a single game in a long time. But if like if Frank Clark is back and Chris Jones is obviously back as a, an interior threat, Melvin Ingram brings some pressure now that they've acquired him for almost nothing, like all of a sudden, the Chiefs defensive front, I think is definitely different than it was earlier in the year. Yeah, completely. Uh, I, I looked it up quickly. Frank Clark, 10 pressures in the divisional round game against the Houston Texans in 2019. So yesterday was the highest he's had since that point. Uh, he had the pressure, Chris Jones, uh, Melvin Ingram. So yeah, that that front is looking good in Kansas City. And fair points on the Raiders. I think you know, attrition did get to them. Darren Waller is so huge for that offense. So um, yeah, it's not necessarily just regressing into preseason takes there but yeah the injuries in the wrong spots and then yes the weakness on the offensive line I would say definitely catching up to the Raiders by the way the 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 most egregious thing though is like the defensive game plan not changing that's the one area of this team where it shouldn't have been impacted that much by the changes you know what I mean like they haven't lost a critical first round player that is not that doesn't allow them play anymore they haven't like they have their coordinator in place like that's the thing where you look at that and well why are we why did we try and let's just let's just take another swing at this one from the first time it worked so well like i i that's pretty inexcusable to just roll in there with your same game plan and you know in the the pregame show austin was making the point it's like oh well you can't ask jonathan abram to play deep off like what is this obsession that says Jonathan Abram needs to be on the field? If he can't play in a too-high coverage shell, put him on the bench. Or say you're playing linebacker this week. Like, he doesn't have to be out there. And it, 
it almost doesn't matter who's behind them. Like, how hard is it to play half a field as a deep safety? I'm just saying, I, I think this is going to be another good offseason discussion, which is how how malleable do NFL defenses have to be this these days, right? How much uh, do they need to change based off the ebbs and flows of the season and the other, the trends that have been put forth by other teams? How much do, do you need a defensive coordinator who can adjust to those things and then players who could do the same thing, right? This was... This might be a new world, Sam, right? Like we've talked about Bill Belichick being great at this historically, right? One week he plays zone, another another week he plays cover one man, another one one week he blitzes, one and it's more specific than that, right? But the point is you can you can craft specific game plans in Belichick's system and you know teams are able to 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 do that. The the Seattle cover 3 system I mean, we've seen them adjust a little bit the the their tree, their coaching th- tree through the uh, through the years. Even Dan Quinn's adjusted a little bit, but uh, Gus Bradley with the Raiders, you know, sticking pretty much to what he knows. And I want to know, you know, this this it'll be a fun discussion though. I just I wonder how much teams need to coach this up a little bit more and say no, it's no more. We do what we do. It's like we have to attack weaknesses, even if it's not our strength defensively. I'm just saying, Jonathan Abram should never be the reason you cannot no, shift I get it. to yeah. a, like I, a, a game plan that's supposed to work against an, op, uh, an opposing offense. All right, let's go to, let's go to this Dallas-Washington game, Sam. Another game that uh, it, did, it did mean a lot, and uh, it looked like a blowout early on. Uh, Dallas, you know, kind of lets Washington back in. Washington's clawing back. It was twenty-four to nothing into the second half. Gets to twenty-four to eight. It's even twenty-seven to eight. Dallas, but again, Washington keeps keeps clawing back in. And then uh, Dak Prescott throws a pick six with just a few minutes left in the game, up twenty-seven to fourteen. That was what really let Washington back into the game. Dak did not did not have his best game in this one. What'd you think of this uh, Dallas-Washington game? (laughs) So this game was a blowout. I don't care that the score is 27 to 20 and that, technically speaking, Washington almost got it back. This game, like, Dallas absolutely dominated this game start to finish and somehow it it almost conspired to not go their way. Like, early in the game, Randy Gregory makes this, like, all-time great play. On, on a pass that was already tipped, by the way. Like, somebody else got a piece of this at the line. And then Gregory, it was like a screenplay where they released everybody uh, in terms of defensive linemen. Somebody got a piece of it. Then Gregory reaches back, tips it to himself, picks it off. Um, and then, like, from that point on, Dallas are obviously in, a, in the ascendancy. Washington are in a hole. And Hein Taylor Heineke is, like, pressing knowing that he needs to be the thing that brings this team back even though the score never got out of control he was playing like they were in a you know four score hole and just needed to get things done and it was almost like he was trying to see how many Dallas defenders he could fit a ball in between like just kept firing these passes over the middle into like a bucket between four different guys just them to be picked there's your Fitzpatrick cop that you love so much except like Fitzpatrick typically you know is more like just give me a one-on-one down the sideline and I'll YOLO it in there and maybe the safety will get over. Heineke was just like, no, where is the highest concentration of Dallas defenders on this play? That's where we're going to try and fit the ball into. So, like, you're like, oh, at this point, this is going to get out of control because it's only a matter of time before 
one, two, three, or four of these passes is picked off. Dallas didn't get them. They kept just bouncing away or falling incomplete. And really that kind of allowed the, the Washington to hang in there. Um, and then, like, as you say, like right at the dead, like Dallas, Dallas generally were playing well, but Dak Prescott wasn't. And then the pick six was the thing that really swung momentum back towards Washington and almost made it a, a nail-biting finish. Yeah, just for a Dallas team that is you know so explosive offensively, just so many mistakes. Four sacks. Uh, Dak had four turnover-worthy plays, and there were five drops. I mean, it was just errors of, from everyone, really. Uh, the Dak, the Dak pick six. Uh, Cole Holcomb makes a really good play, uh, but he just didn't see him. He just did not see him underneath and it's you know late in the fourth quarter where you really have to just take care of the ball and I think uh, you know Dak has not been he has not been taking care of the ball he did throw a fourth quarter interception against the Saints the previous week he had mentioned he had some sort of quote this week that he's going through his progressions too quickly uh, in other words, you know, coming off of receivers who could be getting open not giving him time to get open and just coming off them a little bit he does look like he's it's just like a seeing the field type of slump, I would say, for Dak. Like something's off. He's trying to find, okay, what's what's my pace for going through those progressions? Even early is is early interception, just an overthrow on a on a crossing route that that really wasn't there. Um, so he just looks like he's going through a, a bit of a slump at quarterback. And uh, look, I think also credit Dallas that uh, they're good enough, you know, to win without Dak Prescott playing, you know, at his best. You have Micah Parsons getting to the quarterback again and this defense, you know, able to make plays and like you said the Randy Gregory play and all that. That would be the difference in this year's Dallas team versus last year. If Dak played like this before, you know, like he early in the year before he got hurt last year, Dallas has no chance in a game like this. But uh they come away with the win. They move to 9 and 4. But um I'd be a little concerned about how Dak Prescott's been playing in these recent last last few weeks here. His earlier interception was about, it's probably the largest I can remember a guy just missing a throw by. Like the largest margin of just inaccuracy I can remember on a throw. Most, most truly catastrophic interceptions are like his second one where it's like, oh, you just didn't see the linebacker. And okay, right. that's a terrible play. But of course, when you never see a player, you're going to end up throwing a ball right to him. The first one, like he, he missed C.D. Lamb on the crosser. But he almost overthrew the single high deep safety, who was like eight yards further downfield than C.D. Lamb. Like that's that throw was so far off that he. I mean, it wasn't even in the same zip code as the guy he was throwing it to, and it was almost so far off that it cleared all available defenders. And he wasn't. Again, that can happen if you're under pressure, or your footwork's off, or you know you have to throw from a weird angle because of all the pressure. That was a perfectly clean pocket. And he missed the guy by about as much as I can remember a quarterback missing a target by without any sort of mitigating factors there. Yeah, he was he was just off. And again, I think it's uh, something Dallas needs. I mean, I, I don't think they want Dak playing like that as they head into uh, you know into the playoffs. Taylor Heineke on the other side, he ended up getting hurt. So it was Kyle Allen leading the comeback charge. Uh, uh, DeAndre Carter drops a, a great pass. You know, late where there was an opportunity for Washington to to drive and, and tie it at the end, um, but there's a drop there. Then Allen takes a, I think he took a sack right on the next play. Uh, so 
you know, Kyle Allen off the bench could not get it done. But uh, yeah, it was a game where Dallas looked like they were going to run away with it, let Washington back in, made it a lot more interesting. That was such a huge play, that that dropped pass um, to Carter. That was like, what, they were, they, was, they were down by seven, three minutes left, uh, second down, absolute dime deep down the field, straight through Carter's hands. And then the next play, it wasn't just um, took a sack, but that was the forced fumble, the game, like turnover, Dallas get the ball back and basically done. Like that, Washington had a real shot of tying up the game at that point. That would, I forget how far down the field it was, but they were, that, they were somewhere, you know, approaching midfield at that point. That would have put them into field goal range at least and you know set up with a chance to really do something in this game that was such a body blow like if you know you're you're starting with taylor heineke kyle allen comes in you know you're not going to have the best quarterback situation in the world when those guys do deliver a dime like you need the receivers to come up with the with the ball and carter <laughs> it's, it's did. true that's, that's basically that's that's the way to put it uh how how fun is Dallas's defense though with Micah Parsons with Randy Gregory, uh, you know as they get as they get to full strength defensively, I mean that is it's a huge difference as they go in. Uh, think about who they might have to play in the playoffs if you have to face the Rams or the Cardinals who are playing tonight. If you have to play the Bucks, if you have to play the Packers, being able to put pressure on the quarterback, mix up looks defensively. Uh, you know, pray that Trevon Diggs has one of those games where it's you know the ball finds him rather than you know he's getting beaten deep. Yeah, there's there is just so much more potential with this with this defense now, especially Demarcus Lawrence, like all those guys up front and what they're able to do. Just a huge difference, I think, for Dallas than they've than they've had these last few years. Parsons is ridiculous at this point. Like he he's closing in on. Javon Curse's rookie sack record, which has stood since, what, 1999? So we're talking a 20-plus year reign of this thing. Now, okay, he's had an extra game to do it in. On the other hand, he doesn't really play defensive end. So the fact that he's already exceeded DeMarcus Ware's rookie sack record for the Cowboys, he's now approaching the all-time rookie sack record for the NFL – and he doesn't like he's not a full time edge rusher. This is a dude that does this like on the side while he's playing linebacker. Um, and okay, he's he's been a full time edge rusher for a few games when they've been banged up and needed some kind of impact uh, guy on the defensive line. But it's incredible a how productive he is being, like leading all rookies in in uh, total pressures despite a hundred fewer pass rushers than all the guys behind him. He has a top five pass rush win rate of any player at any position in the NFL. And, you know, like the lower down the level you go of football, the more players that sort of just have, players that play with a greater speed and intensity stand out, right? So if you look at high school, it's just these like physical freaks that are going to make the NFL that just don't belong in the same field with these small kids. Um, And then in college, the same thing is true. You can like if you didn't know any of the prospects for the NFL, you could watch a college game and you could pretty much spot them, you know, just from seeing how they play the game at a different speed, uh, intensity, level of violence. Parsons is like that in the NFL. Like, he arrives at players and just hits at a different physicality, a different speed. It's more impactful when he gets there than it is when other players get there. And not just other players, but, like, good, all-pro 
you know, Pro Bowl caliber players, Parsons looks different. It's it's really insane how good he is right off the bat. Yeah, another one of those, I, I agree with all of it. Another one of those I want to probably sit down and kind of like rehash it early offseason about this draft class. How many... How many of those different looking athletes and players do we have with guys like Kyle Pitts and just uh, uh, who am I forgetting off the top here? But it's like um, all the tackles, right? Rashawn Slater and, and Panay Sewell looking great right away. Uh, basically, everybody but the quarterback class, um, you know, having having some really good, uh, really good game changing players at various positions uh, you know, around the NFL added to the mix here. And uh, look, Parsons, he's been fantastic. 92.7 pass rush grade this season. Did you see that um, that Dallas brought their own heated benches to this game? I did not see that. Did they really? Apparently FedEx. That's why, really, that's why Mike McCarthy guaranteed victory. He knew the secret weapon. Apparently, apparently FedEx field is such a, a kip that Dallas decided that they'd spoken to some other team who was like, oh, the, the things that they're going to give you, you don't want any piece of them. So they packed their own heated benches <laughs> with them, brought them to the sideline. I just, I mean, that's, that's an impressive dedication to, you know, going over the top. You know that's an easy call, though, right? Like Mike, Mike McCarthy's calling Jerry Jones, like, hey, Jerry. Right. We need some heated benches to beat the... Uh, to beat Washington. Already on the way, Mike. They're already on the way. Our facility in, in Dallas is like our own mini city for the Cowboys, of course. Yeah, you absolutely pack the benches onto whatever freight train we're, we're bringing over there. I love it. Football fans, I'm sure we all love an action-packed, high-scoring NFL game, but with the latest no-brainer from DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, you'll be a winner once a single point is scored. New customers who bet just $1 on any team to score can win $100 in free bets. It's that simple. If Sportsbook isn't yet available in your state, you can still get in on the NFL action. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings daily fantasy sports contests. And DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF. Bet $1 on any team to score. And you win $100 in free bets. It's that simple. If they score, you score. With promo code PFF this week at DraftKings Sportsbook. An official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older. New Jersey, Indiana, and Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit. $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Go check it out right now. The DraftKings Sportsbook app. Promo codes PFF. Just go get your free $100 in free bets. All right, Sam. The rest of the 1 o'clock slate was poor. Let's discuss. <laughs> Let's discuss. Somewhat quick, quicker. I don't know. Rapid fire through some of these things. What'd you say? Which poor game do you want to talk about? Oh, I don't know. Atlanta 29, Carolina. I'm going in order now. Atlanta 29, Carolina Panthers 21. An NFC South battle here. And uh, another one where, look, the, Fal- the Falcons tried to do some weird things to let the Panthers back in to this game. Cam Newton had a pick six, uh, but with the Atlanta up two scores, they fumble to let Carolina back into the game, but the Falconing was not completed. They did pull it off. They, they, uh, they get the win 29-21. to 21. Falcons move to six and seven, like every other team in the Why does every team have five or six wins in the NFL right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, 
the Falcons did desperately try and throw this away, but ultimately Carolina were too bad for them to, to let that happen. My, I think what I like about the Carolina offense right now is they're doing this like musical chairs thing with the quarterbacks. And so they throw in PJ Walker for a few plays a couple of times. And look, it, it wasn't. So I think the idea was that PJ Walker can run the two minute offense because he's been there a while and Cam Newton can't yet. So that's why it was happening. It wasn't just like Cam Newton made a mistake. So PJ comes in and then, oh, back to the bench with you. Um, Cam Newton can come back. Like I, there was logic to it. Now, I don't know that it was great logic in that <laughs> how bad can Cam Newton possibly be at running the two minute offense? Uh, what I do like, though, is that, that, you know, they've been chopping and changing quarterbacks all season long. But it's the immediacy with which Philip Walker shows that he shouldn't be on the field. Like he comes in immediately throws an interception. And it's like, oh, yeah, maybe Cam Newton could run the two-minute offense better than that. <laughs> could he avoid an interception? Perhaps. I mean, either way, both quarterbacks graded in the 50s from a pass grade standpoint. Cam Newton had 47 yards on the ground, had a really nice rushing touchdown. Uh, but the, the post-Joe Brady era, Sam, uh, wasn't necessarily great here for the, uh, for the Carolina offense. No, it certainly wasn't. Um, and it didn't, it didn't look, you know, dramatically different. Like, this wasn't – we didn't see this massive pivot towards, oh, you're going to run the ball incessantly, like you're going to be this run-first mm-hmm. offense. And they were in position to do that for most of the game. Like, they took the lead first. They scored f- the first touchdown. Um, it didn't get out of control for – I mean, certainly the first half was, what, a, a 10-point deficit, which is not great, but it's not like abandon your game plan completely and – and roll they got it back to within three earlier in the third quarter um there's no reason uh, what i'm saying is that the the game flow would have taken them out of a run first type of offense if that had been where they were going post joe brady so what we're looking at here is just the fixes for this offense are not there for this season like you know we talked before about how carolina was making these moves as if they still expect to be a playoff team and a factor by the end of the season, I mean, they're not. Like, they're just not good enough right now. There's too many problems, whether it's quarterback, whether it's the offensive line, whether it's play calling, whatever it is, you are not fixing what ails this team between now and the playoffs. Panthers also have, they have the Bills this week. We'll see if Josh Allen's healthy. They've got the Bucks twice in the, in the last few weeks here. Uh, Bucks. I mean, the Panthers at 5-8. and eight. I mean, yeah, I, I agree. It's not a... It's not a win-now type of team, and they've given up some draft capital. They don't have all their draft capital next year, so that'll be, you know, this that'll be another discussion because if Carolina did attack this season uh, like it was a full rebuild, uh, yeah, maybe they make a few uh, they make a few moves differently. PJ Walker's interception was rough right before the two-minute warning or at the two-minute warning in the first half, but that's the other part too. Like, are you? I almost feel like they're putting PJ in there too to kind of like get a look at him. Is he there? backup of the future as they're uh, you know probably going to go all in for some kind of quarterback this offseason uh, you know if you're, if you're playing a PJ Walker playing a Davis Mills at this point if you're the Houston Texans you kind of do want to see what you have in those guys right I mean that I feel like the Panthers are just hedging by putting PJ Walker in there at this point uh, we mentioned the, the Panthers offensive line against a bad Falcons pass rush well Panthers O-line grades in the 50s from a pass-blocking standpoint. Not everybody was bad, but Brady Christensen, Pat Elfline, uh, not great up front. Dennis Daly, uh, Joe Brady or not, it's still this offensive line that is 
probably the biggest issue for this Panthers offense. Yeah, really, I mean, it's prohibitively bad. It's it's a it's certainly it's a terrible offensive line in at least three different spots. And if you're three fifths of your line is a catastrophe, you're gonna suck. Like, you, and that's not a platform that you can succeed with. And the real issue is that they've actually. It's not like they just didn't do anything to the offensive line. There are multiple spots where they prioritize players and free agency, and that's what they ended up with. Like, that is the bigger concern, because now you have massive questions about whether this team is even capable of identifying the fix. Like, if you, if you saw that this was going to be an issue last offseason, and the solution you had in mind was, let's go get Pat Elfline, let's go get Cam Irving, lock them up in the first 24 hours of free agency, and boom, the left side is fixed. Okay, I mean, now what, are you, what is your game plan now when, when it, the self-evident truth that that was just never going to work becomes apparent? Like, what's, what are we doing next? Let's, let's go get, you know, let's make a trade for Alex Leatherwood. Like, what, what is your plan to fix this? That's just getting cruel now. Well, we'll, we'll have to come up with a plan this offseason when we're fixing every team in five minutes. Uh, the Falcons at 6-7, and seven, Sam. Same record as Washington, the Vikings, Eagles, and the Saints. All 6-7 and seven at this point. Falcons, uh, as a per ESPN, 10th in the playoff picture here. So, hey, look, they're, they're in the hunt. So, it's a big win for the Falcons if they're trying to sneak in at that number 7 seed, especially with Washington losing this week. So, uh, you just never know what's going to happen here. Codero Patterson finds the end zone again, and... Uh, I don't have much else on this game other than the Falcons stay alive. Uh, the Detroit Lions, unfortunately, though, were officially eliminated. So all of that crazy stuff that we were hoping for just, just didn't happen this week. Them Jags and Jets are all eliminated officially this week. Just as you were talking, I just went to update the simulation, my simulation, yeah. the yeah, individual. Yeah. I didn't even need to. I got them all right this week. Oh, wow. Every single game I had picked correctly. Let's nah. just skip the games from now on. We'll just go by your simulation. That was just straight up, but every single game was, was already picked correctly. I didn't need to change a damn thing. All right, let's discuss this uh, Seattle 33-13 to win over the Houston Texans. Davis Mills got the start for the Texans. Looking good early on. Uh, had some rookie ups and downs. I got to say, overall, I'm hey, look, I'm more impressed with Davis Mills this year uh, than I anticipated, I would say. Uh, but there was some... Uh, throw back the clock for Russell Wilson as well. The guy that, you know, with the mallet finger and all that stuff. All you needed was the Texans defense and a little uh, indoor environment for Russ chucking it around. Big time throws left and right. Tyler Lockett with 142 yards and a touchdown. And uh, there was some vintage Russ in this game throwing the ball down the field. There was, yeah. Russell Wilson made some uh, legit plays in this game. And actually, this was, I think, the closest we've seen to him being back since, since mallet finger. Um, Take your victory lap. Here, here we go. Let's hear it. The running back, Rashad Penny. Oh yeah, Rashad Penny breakout game. Finally, what four <laughs> years into this thing, this is the player that we saw in college. Finally, there. Um, I mean, I'm not. <laughs> it's like the dude that keeps messaging us with like Rashawn Gary victory laps. Like it's taking him like two and a half years to be decent. How how impressive is that? Um, yeah, like however many years into this, we finally saw Rashad Penny look exactly like the dude from San Diego State. Um, the uh, Russell Wilson to Tyler Lockett connection is one of the best in the NFL. When they're healthy, it's phenomenal. 
I don't quite understand why they're finding it so difficult to get the ball to DK Metcalf. Like, I understand he doesn't do as many things and is not as, as not available in as many different capacities as Tyler Lockett is. But the ways he does win are quite useful and pretty easy to like integrate into a system and an offense. Like why, why is the ball not going in his direction more and earlier? Like it's not even that the volume. Like he ended up with um, like a decent number of targets, right? He ended eight up, targets, four catches, forty-three yards. Right, but in the first half, he had one. Like. Okay. Playing receiver, there's definitely a degree to which if you do not get the ball for like an entire half, you're, you're not in a good headspace. Like it's very, very difficult to just turn it on three quarters into a game. And it's like, oh, now I'm a part of this offense. Like you need to be you need to get the ball at some stage and feel like you're you're a significant part of this. And this is not like this is a trend. They do not give the ball to, to DK Metcalf until late in the game, like for a couple of weeks in a row now. How hard is it to get this guy the ball? Yeah, I don't know if it's early. I remember early in the season, we're like, hey, DK's playing a different role. He's running slot routes. He's running little option routes underneath. I don't know if they just tried to put him into this Ram-centric type of offense and just be a cog in the offense rather than, you know, the, the, the featured player where I think, you know, the old Seattle regime, it was, it was certainly a more vertically driven offense. Uh, that was that's what DK excels at. He runs slants and goes extremely well. You can run him on the deep over route, which, by the way, the deep over route was a huge part of this offense. They just happen to go to lock it more often in this particular game. Or Will Disley over the middle, re- really nice play there where they got got Disley involved. But um, I just don't know how much of it is that you know just putting DK into an offense rather than building the offense around DK and lock it. To be fair, right? I mean, those are the guys that should be featured. So. Um, Look, Russ Russ had a bunch of big-time throws, some within structure, some outside. I think that was great. I think some of the intermediate stuff was better. Um, Russ left a few plays on the table in this one, but I think overall that was better. And, yeah, again, it's it's not all fixed in a week against the Texans in the Dome, but – you know, there's there's still some work to do as far as this Lockett, Metcalf, and those guys, you know, building the offense around those guys and then figuring out what those uh, other pieces are uh, around those guys. Uh, Penny had 137 yards, by the way, and two scores on 16 carries. That's uh, the most elusive and just the best he has looked in quite a while. It genuinely did look like his college play. Like, it was this, the same guy, the same kind of faster than he looks rumbling type of uh, thing or with a couple of stiff arms in there. Look, vintage Rashad Penny. Um, the Texans defense is possibly the largest wall of red grading I've ever seen in my life in a single game. Like they played a lot of players in this game and almost every single one of them graded terribly. Like yeah. Jonathan Greenard played, uh, played well. Um, Couple he of almost other guys. had one of those Gregory type of picks, batted right. past and almost dove back and caught it. A couple of other guys were okay. Everybody else was terrible. Yeah, like I said, the the uh, the middle of the field was open. Seattle attacked it. Um, I do the the positive note for the Texans. I do think you know Nico Collins for a for a guy that you know, they didn't have a ton of uh, draft picks. Nico Collins has done some good stuff as a rookie. Brandon Cooks remains good. I, we'll see what happens with Cooks this offseason. He should probably head to a contender somewhere because he could still play. 
I like Nico Collins as a prospect. I mean, my issue with, with him as the draft pick was never never selecting him, never where they selected him, was trading up to get it done when you didn't have draft capital to do that. Like, the process was bad. The player, I think, is, is a good one and potentially for them. Uh, Davis Mills' grade ended up not as good. A couple turnover-worthy plays a little bit later. But again, I think he's a little bit more comfortable than I had expected. And given the rest of the rookie play, you know, by guys not named Mac Jones this year, I don't know. Intrigued, I guess. I don't know if I want Davis Mills as my future starter yet, but he's got he's got more time to show show what he's got, develop. He was inexperienced in college, you know. Maybe there's something there, uh, but I think you know clearly the Texans going to be looking for their QB of the future early offseason here. Yeah, I feel like Davis Mills is going to be a frustrating player in terms of just he's pushing the he's pushing the opposite side of your priors heading into the season right so my prior on davis mills heading into the year was he was a terrible quarterback at in college uh, a bad draft pick a guy that basically had no shot of being a quality nfl starter now it's not like he's disproving me you know he's not you're not looking at davis mills and going, oh wow i blew this one like he's amazing we're we're cooking davis mills our quarterback of the future but he's closer to that side than he is like, oh, 100% vindicated. Davis Mills is a complete train wreck who's never going to amount to anything. So it feels like you're going to have this like permanent uh, run of he's just the other side of your priors, you know, like making you making you second guess what you thought about him every time you watch him play, but never quite enough to buy into what he's doing. But I agree that like he should be their starter going forward. You, you haven't seen enough from him yet. He's shown enough to say that he deserves to be looked at for the rest of the season. The Kyle Allen comp remains for me, Sam. That was that was Kyle Allen's, you know, uh, test run or whatever, you know, tryout a few years ago when he got to play. There's just enough good and there's just enough bad that you kind of land in the middle and maybe Davis Mills becomes a, just a just a good old backup, you know, for the majority of his career. Uh, let's go New Orleans Saints 30, Jets 9. This game was a little bit closer than the score indicated, but of course, Taysom Hill runs, what, untouched for 44 at the end to uh, add another touchdown there. So the Jets tried to hang tough. Zach Wilson finishes 19 for 42. You don't see that uh, that line very often. 45% completions on 42 dropbacks, few sacks in there as well. And uh, yeah, the Jets... Tried to hang tough, but uh, not enough against the Saints. Yeah, this was a seven-point game until, you know, into the fourth quarter at some point um, when the Saints started to pull away. They, they then got a couple of scores, and Taysom Hill put some gloss on it towards the end. But they – the Jets are not good. They couldn't get anything done on either side of the ball. Alvin Kamara kind of was the Saints' offense. It's like Kamara was the guy that was going to get anything good done, and then Taysom Hill is the guy that sort of just about keeps the chains moving, you know, and picks up the occasional third and short or fourth and short if he doesn't pick up the third and short. Um, and then so the like the Saints offense was it was it was a tough slog. It was hard going and it was a grind. They just don't have the capacity to make explosive plays, and they have to kind of rely on just keeping it alive on a given drive and trying to get it all done on the ground and they did it was good enough to win but against a better team you know this would have been a problem 
Yeah, they play the Bucks next week, and they're double-digit underdogs. Despite all of the success that the Saints have had uh, against the Bucks, they are going into that game. They're like they're they were outmanned. They're not outmanned. They're just they're down. Just a lot of players. They have been over these last few weeks. So the Saints will play a good team next week. In this one, you know, like you said, uh, just kind of slog through it. Taysom Hill. He was fine, other than he did sack himself, throwing the ball backwards on one, where they lost bad yardage. He recovered it, but you know that was an ugly play in there. Um, it is interesting, though. There are games where Taysom Hill, the opposite of uh, Zach Wilson, Taysom Hill completes over seventy percent of his passes. For a guy like you know, when you run, when you run so much, you expect to have that explosive element on the other end of it from a pass game perspective. It's a lot of underneath stuff. For, for Taysom Hill so far as a passer in the NFL when he's been the starter. Uh, and then, you know, Wilson on the other side just could not you know, show signs of life last week against the Eagles, just couldn't really build upon it. Another game grading in the 50s. Did get, take care of the ball, though. No real turnover-worthy plays in there. Just, uh, just general misses this week for Zach Wilson. You know, buries like a – was it a bubble or a swing route? I mean, there's just too much – Easy stuff still in there for Zach Wilson that um, is looking too difficult. Easy stuff looking difficult for Zach Wilson, I think, might sum up the season for him as a rookie. Yeah, and he was missing some receivers in this game, so there's at least a little bit more in terms of inbuilt excuses than there has been earlier in the season. But, yeah, yeah, I agree that there wasn't a ton of – there wasn't much in terms of signs of life. The the Saints' offense with Taysom Hill is weird because – it's obviously a grind trying to get anything done. But you're right. Like the, the defining characteristic at the moment is where is the big play? Where is the explosive passing play? Obviously, he broke off a big run. But if you're going to be this guy where you have to respect QB power plays and you have to think about what he's going to do to outgap you in the run game, it has to be opening something up deep down the field. And, and when he's played in the past... Those plays have been there, and his problem is he's been so late seeing them or targeting them that it's been like a you know, terrible underthrown pass that at best is going to get the pass interference play and bail it out, but at worst it's just not complete. But I don't think he had a deep target in this game. I don't think he had a deep shot, like one of them, uh, in a game where they, were, you know, they had more rushing yards than passing yards. They were having success in the ground. Like where is the big play over the top – that is is going to exploit that and and he wasn't even like everything was short yeah it's it's something they look if they're they're six and seven like everyone else in the nfc if they're gonna sneak into that last playoff spot as well feels like something they need to figure out explore more explosive plays particularly in the past game with Taysom hill uh, it was the way we described the Ravens' offense earlier this year, right? If if Lamar is going to run, let's 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 have that ten average depth of target. Let's chuck it down the field and create those chunk plays. Even if you have a couple incompletions there, you have a chance to flip the field. I mean, part of it's the playmaker situation too, Sam. Uh, Nick Vanette's the leading receiver. You just you don't have explosive playmakers other than what Deontay Harris, who's the other punt returner, who could. Uh, you know, generally, you know, get behind the defense at times, but it's not like the other receivers, Marcos Callaway, Traquan Smith, that's not really their game. So part of it's just a disconnect in how the uh, the team is built as well. You do have guys like Kenny Stills on the roster who has been like a career deep threat. Like there are guys there, particularly, again, because the whole point about this kind of quarterback is that he opens up things like this for receivers that otherwise might not be 
winning in these kinds of situations. Kenny Stills, for his career, is typically one in these kind of situations anyway. And if you then fold in the idea that Taysom Hill is opening that up yet further, these plays should be there even for a receiving core as bereft of talent as the New Orleans Saints. And for some reason, they're not even taking those shots. And yet, despite that, like Taysom Hill is not playing is not passing terribly. Okay, last week he had the, you know, wrecked finger, so you can dismiss that a little bit. But he completed, you know, 70% of his passes in this game. His adjusted completion rate was higher. He isn't the worst passing quarterback in the world, but they don't appear to be tapping into the area that his rushing threat should boost, which is the weird thing to me. Yeah, and I know Deontay Harris didn't play yesterday. I was just pointing him out as a guy that, when he's healthy, is the guy that you know you could take some shots with. With him out, you you do you you do just have Kenny Stills, like you said. But the bottom line, average depth of target four and a half for Taysom Hill. There is just a little disconnect with you know the way you could build the Taysom Hill offense. I would say um, we'll see if the Saints open it up a little bit more against the Bucks this week. For the Jets, they give up 200 yards on the ground. And, uh, yeah, I think the defense can get gashed on the grounds. They get gashed through the air, and it's just not a good season for the Jets. It's also not a good season for the Jacksonville Jaguars. The two teams that picked one and two are looking like the same teams that picked one and two last year. Tennessee 20, Jaguars 0. A lot of turmoil in Jacksonville, uh, crazy quotes and weird stuff behind the scenes with urban meyer and do the troops rally for this nope it is an absolute dud by the jaguars here and uh and now you know look we've been talking a lot about urban meyer this year but now the the body language reading you know the the look away handshake to mike vrabel and just the lifelessness at the podium after the game about his offensive line being bad and just man Urban looks just miserable in Jacksonville right now. And remember, Vrabel was on his coaching staff at Ohio State. Like, this is not a coach that he has no connection with. Like, this is a dude that was working with him not that long ago. And he, yeah, like, hand in the pocket, just sort of cursory glance in his direction, quick handshake, and away we go, just trudging around the field. It it doesn't look good. Like, if you're the New York Jets, everything's been terrible very little signs of life from Zach Wilson. The whole, like, the defense is bad, and that's obviously supposed to be Salah's thing. There's almost nothing to look at if you're the Jets and think of in, in a positive light. The one thing you can look at is, at least we're not the Jags. Like, that's literally <laughs> that's all you've got. You're positive? Yes. You're the, Jets? the only positive the for Jets. the New York Jets is it could be worse. We could be Jacksonville, who... If, like, some of the reports circulating, and the other thing is, these are reports that came out from NFL media. Like, it was Tom Pelissero's report, and he wasn't alone. Like, there were other, but the official NFL media is putting this stuff out, right? So, the, the reports of what's happening in Jacksonville are mind-blowing in terms of how a head coach is operating. Like, to the degree where you're like, how has this succeeded at any level anywhere in the past? Because let's remember, this dude has a really impressive resume. 
of winning and succeeding in multiple different programs. Okay, big power. And he'll let you know about it, perhaps, in a team meeting, which was one of the reports this week where he basically said, hey, look, guys, my resume is better than yours, fellow coaches. Well, not just that, but, like, you guys are losers. Justify your resumes to me. Like, what? Um, I just don't – it's the things that are coming out makes you wonder how that guy has had success anywhere given the way he's apparently treating people. But – I mean, this is this is worst case scenario for Jacksonville. The generational quarterback talent you took at the top of the draft looks terrible. He is being given no help whatsoever. The offense is hanging him out to dry. Receivers are running into each other still, like 14 weeks into the season, and this has been a, a problem all season long. They're in the wrong places. They're not being schemed open, even if they were in the right places. Lawrence has no help at all. The run game wasn't even there in this game. They just didn't try to run the ball. Eight carries for eight yards total as a team. Right. Everything. And then, like, everything you hear about the coaching situation is abysmal, even independent of the, like, stuff earlier in the year where he's, you know, didn't get on the plane with the team, was caught grinding on some chick in a bar or whatever it is. Like, this is just – this is literally the worst-case scenario if you're Shad Khan and the Jacksonville Jacks. Like, you – this was supposed to completely redefine and rebuild your franchise from the ground up. And you are 14 weeks into this thing and probably looking for a way out at this point. It was bad in week four. And now it's worse. That's tough to do. And that so that's kind of like, look, the uh, the Christian Hackenberg drinking game. Let's bring that back. The Christian Hackenberg was so bad as a prospect. We would always say, how good does he have to get to just get to average backup, to reasonable, right? I mean, I'm starting to get that vibe from from Urban Meyer and this regime with the Jaguars. Let's say they correct a whole bunch of stuff. They hire an innovative offensive coordinator to work well with Trevor Lawrence, and they add a bunch of playmakers and this and that, and Urban adjusts his, like how, he's so, like everything is so bad right now. They can get better at five or six or seven things, and they'll, it still might be a four or five win team. That's how bad it is. It's everything is just off. And if you're the Jaguars, you can't waste. I don't know, man. You just can't waste this. I, I don't think Trevor Lawrence is as bad as he's showing. He deserves some blame. I mean, there are some throws in there where he's just like not seeing linebackers or not even caring. Uh, or I saw somebody, I think it was Booger actually described, he's just, he's underestimating the playmaking ability of defensive backs in the league, which is, it, it was an, it felt like an early season problem that you kind of grow out of, that he's, that Trevor Lawrence is not growing out of. But at the same time, you literally have two receivers running into each other and falling over on a play. Like, what else? The, it's just bad around. The, the situation reminds me of Jared Goff's 2015, uh, 16, with the Rams, with Jeff Fisher, where everything was bad, they ran a pass route where there was like a small box of players within like four yards of each other. You could just see like everything was bad, right? The scheme, the players, the the vibe, everything. And uh, it does feel like maybe maybe everybody needs a fresh start in Jacksonville, even if it's a, an expensive one for Shad Khan. Some of the numbers coming out of this game are amazing for the for the Jags offense. The uh, like. They, they averaged one yard per rush. Um, they averaged minus 1.5 yards before contact per rush. So on those eight carries, the running back was being hit a yard and a half in the backfield 
on average. Um, they, <laughs> they averaged minus 0.5 EPA per play, which is the lowest I can ever remember seeing for a single game. I'm, I, I don't know if it's a record. I'll like look that up at some point when I have some time. But that is, that's a mind-blowingly horrendous number. They ran 51 plays and had nine first downs in the entire game. This was just abysmal. Like, I cannot put into words how terrible this was. And yeah, like Trevor Lawrence is definitely not blameless. He's making some mistakes. On the other hand, everything is a train wreck. Like, Laquan Treadwell is one of his number one receivers at this point. Like, what are you doing? Hey, I, all I have to say is Laquan Treadwell has shown enough that he might be a good number four going forward, which, you, you know, you couldn't have said that about him previously. I'm just saying, there's... You know that that might be a positive here, the future for the Jaguars. Um, I again, I, I, I don't know how to, who to credit it to. Kevin Seifert, maybe um, from ESPN. Is he with ESPN still? Um, anyways, I saw somebody tweet about like, okay, so what what are you getting from Urban Meyer? Right? Are you getting uh, innovative college coach? Are you getting great leadership? Are you? Uh, what is the value add that this regime is bringing? And and there's not there's not one yet right if 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 things were like with Robert Sala you could probably point to and say okay he's he's got a history of being a pretty good leader and a motivator and players love him and there's um we'll see how long that lasts with the Jets but you're not like throwing Sala aside you're like okay everything on the field is is bad for the Jets they got to get better but I think we at least have a good leader at the top of it the Jets I mean the Jacks don't have any of that right now um and that is just massively concerning it feels a lot like you know so you know bill belichick has this kind of prickly personality and brings a lot of bad to the table in terms of um how how he presents himself to the media to the outside world but also like within the team i think there's a lot of bad stuff in there as well which you sort of say well this is this is how we do things here and it results in all these wins so everybody buys into it right the patriot way and all this kind of like there's a degree to which he can get away with being an asshole that other coaches can't because he has that built-in resume and there's a buy-in immediately that people go, well, obviously this is how you win all these Super Bowls. And whether or not you know, Tom Brady or Bill Belichick was the driving force behind all those, it's kind of irrelevant, right? It doesn't matter. The point is everybody buys into what he sells because, because of that resume. And then when... Bill Belichick coaches leave, they sort of feel that they can get away with doing the same thing, and it typically blows up in their faces, right? Matt Patricia goes to Detroit, tries to do a lot of the same things, tries to have the same kind of prickly personality, puts off these sort of asshole-like demeanors to people, and they just, it's like, well, why am I buying into this? Like, where is your track record of winning things? I see this guy's track record. You were just on as part of the ticket, I'm not buying that you know, like, I don't have enough reason to believe that you, that what you're doing is the way to do it to make me accept that I should buy into this crap. It, like, that kind of feels like what we're dealing with with Urban Meyer right now, where it's like he's putting off this terrible body language, the this sort of petulant attitude in press conferences, the everything is terrible, right? And the reports are even worse. And if you had this guy with a you know extensive track record of winning at this level. No, 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 stay downstairs. Like a, a track record of winning at the NFL level, 
you would be able to look at that, excuse it away, and say, okay, yeah, people might buy into that because they know there's going to be championships at the end of it. But people don't. Like, he's a, an unproven at this level college coach who, okay, he's got a great track record of winning with college kids, but the NFL guys, I don't see any re- – they're not going to buy into that if they're not winning at the NFL level. And right now we're seeing zero sign that that's going to happen going forward. Like, there's nothing you can point to where you can say we are building on something. Even, like, Dan Campbell would have an easier chance of selling that kind of crap based off the season that he's had, right? Because the, the Lions have been playing hard almost all the way through the season. They are giving teams close games almost every single game. Like, you could point to something if you're Dan Campbell and say, look, we are building. We're going to be winning. It's not happening now. We don't have enough talent. But in the future, if you keep on going, you keep on buying what I'm selling, we're going to roll. Like, Urban Meyer can't even point to that. Like, what, what are you pointing to to say, okay, you need to suffer through this crap because <laughs> it's on, there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel? I, I got nothing to add to that. Perfect. I mean, nothing. There's nothing to add. Hey, guys. Life is full of questions. Like, what would happen to my family if something happened to me? Am I saving enough for retirement? And is now the right time to start thinking about life insurance, just to name a few. No one should have to settle for answers to these life-altering questions that involve gray areas or leaving things to chance. And with Western and Southern, you won't have to. Backed by over 130 years of experience gathering insights, building strategies, and helping customers choose the right solutions, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. Compensated endorser products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, we should talk about the Titans at least for a minute here because, yeah, they were on the other side of this, making life difficult defensively for the Jags, sure. Uh, but they moved to 9-4, and four, and they're now tied with the Patriots and the Chiefs at the top now of the AFC. The Patriots have the tiebreaker over the Titans. The Titans have the tiebreaker over the Chiefs due to head-to-head wins. Um, so it's a close race now for that number one overall seed. And as we've been saying for a while, the Titans at least have that path Uh we, we mentioned, as of a few weeks ago, the easiest path uh, in the NFL as far as schedule goes, remaining schedule. This was one of those games. Now they still have the – they have to go to Pittsburgh next week. They've got the 49ers, Dolphins, and then the Texans. Uh, so the Titans, they have an opportunity here. Obviously, they need, they need New England to lose uh, once or twice, but the Titans have an opportunity to, to get that number one seed still uh, despite battling – all of their injuries through the years, uh, through the year, and the disappointment of the last few weeks, you know, uh, kind of laying an egg against New England in that you know, number one seed battle and all that stuff. So um, I don't know that they've figured it out offensively either. Uh, you know, Tannehill gets sacked four times. He didn't throw for more than 200 yards. It's not like they're creating explosive offense. Julio Jones did come back, but buying just enough time. You know, maybe for AJ Brown to get back, get get back on the same page with Julio Jones, figure out that running game. Uh, so Tennessee's just kind of lurking, Sam. I would say, and even though the schedule they set, it says the schedule's easy. Those are still some challenging games that they have coming up here in the next few weeks. Yeah, it's and it's not a Julio Jones stat line that you see very often. Five targets, four catches for thirty-three yards. Uh, one of which was a contested catch. Like that, you know, Julio Jones, this all-time great explosive playmaker. Right now, this this Titans offense is not good enough to exploit that kind of that kind of player. They 
you have to be impressed by their defense generally. Now, okay, it's in the context of everything we just said about Jacksonville's offense, but over the course of this year, Tennessee's defense has been really impressive relative to, I think, the talent level and what they've been dealt with in terms of injuries. The offense, I think, is still, it's been so beaten up by injuries that against the better teams in the playoffs in January, they're going to come unstuck unless they get things more back on track than they are right now. But it might be enough for them to maintain, you know, good position towards the playoffs. Like, I, I, I think they've got to struggle on their hands to secure the number one seed. Obviously, that would be huge for them, avoiding a, a, you know, a playoff game, getting the bye. But even if they can't, you know, they could be in a good position to make the postseason. And then it's just a case of trying to, to get your best game on offense once you get there. All right, let's go to these four o'clock games. Uh, Bucks. 33 bills 27 so we mentioned the the day of football wasn't great uh but you had dallas trying to let washington back in during the one o'clock slate the four o'clock slate looked like blowouts too or at least you know two multiple score games the niners and uh, Bengals end up going to overtime and the buffalo bills just get back into the game the bucks could not put them away in the second half after being up 24 to 3 the bills kept clawing back and they actually get the game to overtime it was 27 to 27 going into overtime but the bucks uh with the walk-off win brady hits brashad perryman for a 58 yard touchdown on the crossing route and the bucks survive to go to 10 and 3 the bills fall to 7 and 6 and uh, we talked a little bit on the pff nfl daily about the teams you don't want to play in the playoffs i I brought up the Bills because I still think they're very good, but this 7-6 and six record has really brought them back down to earth. Uh, Josh Allen playing through a foot injury. He might have turf toe, I believe, is the early report. And it was just, uh, just a handful of times in history we've seen a quarterback throw for 300 and rush for 100 yards. That's what Josh Allen did in this game yesterday. Yeah, it was a, a weird game. This was one where um, they were sort of pulling out you know, the all-time – stats like Brady when he's been up by is it 21 points or something has got 21 is like 106 and one or something (laughs) which is amazing in a couple of different ways one obviously because the record like 100 wins and one loss is nuts but two because he's been up by 21 points 100 times in his career that's madness like that I think is by far the more impressive part of that statistic is not that he's only got the one loss which came against it was it was Fitz magic gave him the only loss back in uh, 2011 yep yeah, like that. Okay, that part's amazing. But I think by far the more incredible part of that is that he's been up by 21 points over 100 times in his career. Uh, and yeah, like it looked for a minute like it was going to come unstuck in this game for no good reason. Like all of a sudden, Tampa Bay just kind of stopped scoring and giving the Bills back the ball a few, a few times consecutively. And when they did that, like Buffalo was suddenly found their touch a little bit and Josh Allen was the guy that was getting like the entire thing was rolling through Josh Allen whether it was on the ground whether it was in the air he was the the player getting everything done it wasn't always good there were some mistakes in there as well but this was a game where Josh Allen kind of took the team on his shoulders and dragged them back into it for a while yeah it wasn't uh it wasn't a clean game for either quarterback, to be honest, all the way through. Allen was much better in the second half. In the first half, you know, kind of threw one up for an interception. Brady put the ball in harm's way way more than he had 
in previous games and got away with them, right? Got away with them with some pass interference calls, the the dreaded underthrown interception, uh, which isn't normally part of Brady's game, but he was benefiting from that, including the call in overtime. Questionable call, right? Uh, just Well, not so much a questionable call as it was, I guess it could have been, but the the thing I hate the most, right? The underthrown inter- uh, the underthrown defensive pass interference. Uh, so Brady getting away with a couple of those in this game, and look, I think I think Buffalo too. They hung tough, man. Their pass defense. You know, I know they they busted on the last play for the fifty eight yarder. Their pass defense is tough, right? They are making things difficult. I thought. I thought overall they kind of passed the test without Tredavious White there. I know they gave up a ton of points and all that, but it's against an explosive Bucks team. I would almost be somewhat encouraged by the Bills' uh, pass coverage because of that. Again, I know it's weird to say, but I think it'll serve them well in the coming weeks that they could still you know do some damage on the back end because they were like the the best coverage unit in the NFL uh, as of a couple weeks ago with uh, with Tredavious White. So again, just a weird game back and forth Josh Allen trying to will the Bills back into it made some big throws and again a ton on the ground with 109 yards some of that was QB sweep some of that was uh, scrambling and the Bills set some kind of record by never handing it off to a running back in the first half but when they finally did hey Devin Singletary had four carries for 52 yards it's like they (laughs) talk about setting up the run with your running back everything was wide open for Singletary once they decided to hand it off yeah, the, the Bills came out on the wrong side of two different... So a, a pass interference call and a non-call. The Bills were on the bad end of both of those late in the game, which I think has got to be the most frustrating thing. Like, whatever about marginal pass interference calls, at the very minimum, you just want them to even out or to be consistent. They got... they didn't One didn't get called on Stephon Diggs in the end zone, and then it did get called on Levi Wallace... Uh, when obviously the Bills were on defense and trying to cover, was it Mike Evans um, on the underthrown play? I think that one was legitimately defensive pass interference. Like Evans could not come back through Levi Wallace to make that play. He was impeded for the ball. I think that was correct to throw a flag. But if you're going to throw that one, you basically have to throw the one on Stephon Diggs as well because same deal. Like He's prevented from going to make a play on that ball by the contact in the end zone. And you can definitely see how Buffalo would be aggrieved that neither of those calls went in their direction. Like Either call them both or don't call either of them. You can't split that and screw one team uh, both times. Yeah, I mean, I saw someone else make the point too on Twitter. Like If there's just a massive EPA driven call like a massive win probability swing call can we just have an automatic review on that just like a logic review on some of those um this was in response to that uh green bay game last night where the punt return goes off of mario rogers head and it gets negated by uh whoever it was running out of bounds on the punt uh, on punt coverage but yeah there are it does feel like this year maybe it's every year but uh, massive calls really affecting games in this one, um, uh, this particular season. But um, look, it started out slow. I thought, you know, the Bucks were up 24 to 3. Brady made a couple spectacular throws early, including the early touchdown to Mike Evans, threw one up for a corner route, put, him, put it right on him. But um, if you said, hey, this game's going to be 33 27, great game, yeah, I mean, I think you'd. Wouldn't be surprised. It's just you didn't expect it to be so lopsided each half. But uh, 
it's such a huge game. It's a non-conference game, but huge loss for the Bills. Tough to, you know, keep pace now with some of the other teams in the AFC. And a massive win for the Bucs, who are still fighting for that number one seed. And they're trying to just, you know, hang tight with the Green Bay Packers and the Arizona Cardinals near the top of the conference. It's very difficult to know what to take from the game generally because um, Tampa Bay were completely in control, had this sort of out dominating the Bills. Buffalo was struggling to deal with the the physicality they they I mean Lenny had 100 yards on what 19 carries or something so the ground game was functioning um, which is another team where Buffalo haven't really been able to bottle that up uh, that would be concerning and obviously the loss is big for them as well just not just simply another another uh, blow and not getting a win and sinking further in the playoff standings or at least staying in the same place in the playoff standings rooted to the bottom of the the seeding um, but then they did execute that comeback. And when Josh Allen had to do the whole thing by himself, okay, there was the, the interception to Richard Sherman there, which was, wasn't a good play. But outside of that, Allen played pretty well, having to do it all himself, not necessarily having the deep ball there available to pick it up in chunk plays, but having to be not necessarily patient, but just efficient and not, not screw it up and being able to lean on the fact that he's a rushing threat as well. Um, so, like, which which part of that is more important? The fact that they did kind of struggle the same way they struggled against the Patriots and uh, the Colts, or the fact that they were able to overcome it and get it back and take it to overtime, and you know, while still coming out on the wrong side. Do do you think they're putting too much on Josh Allen? I mean, the fact that they didn't actually run the ball at all in the first half, which, you know, people think, well, the analytics folks always, they must have loved that. All you do is pass the ball, right? You just pass, 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 pass. Um, and, and it's not like, look, Josh Allen was a part of the design running game. Like I said, they ran QB sweep and they, you know, they, they got him in space. They did a really nice job with some of their run schemes. It just happened to be designed for Josh Allen. Now the play that he got hurt on, was another he got kind of I think it was the one where he got tugged down from behind and it looked it looked like one of those plays that could have been really bad like when you get kind of get your legs rolled up on from behind uh but it was kind of like we were saying with Daniel Jones earlier in the year like when you're you're putting your quarterback out there to take these hits and if you are creating offense it, it you can it, it's good to create offense with the quarterback it's an advantage, especially in the QB run game, but you are taking more hits. As big and durable and as sturdy as Josh Allen is, I mean, he got hurt in the open field. And and so on one hand, because you did all of that, when he did finally hand it off to Devin Singletary, the dude had so much room to run. Matt Breida had a couple carries in there too. Um, so maybe that helped set things up, but like, should the Bills be focusing more on uh, their rushing attack as much as we like to go pass, 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 pass? It might might have been too much here for the Bills. I mean, I think there's a degree to which if you're going to be Josh Allen and you're going to have the monster contract, um, you kind of have to lean into that. Like, okay, because he's such a huge physical specimen and he's going to take a lot of hits in his career, he might not have a Tom Brady type of career. You know, he might not last until he's 45 years old. It's going to be shorter than that. On the other hand, like, this is what makes you special. The idea that you can go out there and be a physically imposing quarterback and have like caused linebackers problems in the open field. There aren't many quarterbacks for whom that is a factor. Uh, I think you have to just lean into that and say, this is the guy, this is why we're paying this dude 40 plus million a year 
because he can do all of these things that other quarterbacks simply can't do. And yes, it might expose him to more hits and it might cause him to get injured at some point or other. But the alternative is we take away a lot of what makes him special. This is like the Cam Newton thing, right? Like Cam Newton was only ever such a incredible player or a unique player because he could do those things that other teams never had to think about, right? What happens if the quarterback from an empty set runs QB power and all of a sudden we're outgapped at, at the line of scrimmage? You never had to think about that before. Not a single quarterback was ever doing that. Cam Newton made you change that, made you practice that, made you work out what you were going to do in defense to combat that and how you would stop opening up other things off the back of it. I think Josh Allen does a lot of the same thing. So, yeah, it, I mean, it ended up, I think, coming back to haunt Cam Newton in terms of injuries. But ultimately, that is the reason that those guys are special. It's an interesting take because, yeah, there is, there is some risk. And what happened with Cam Newton is he always – was playing banged up, not always, but he was playing banged up quite a bit. Ben, ben Roethlisberger was playing banged up quite a bit. Andrew Luck, uh, and, and I'm using those guys because those are the guys that are 6'5", 240, 230, whatever it is, and they're the allegedly the durable guys, but because they do take so many hits, you might have uh, Josh Allen banged up for the majority of his career, but is that still worth it you know how much do you it's kind of like when we describe we've described Deshaun Watson and Russell Wilson in different ways where they have a style that's not so much conducive to injury but it was always conducive to negative plays and sacks but on the other end of it you got special plays so um, I think that's always one of the age-old questions when you have quarterbacks who either are big parts of the running game or just like to play outside of structure so much how much do you try to contain them save a few hits, save a few negative plays versus, you know, tapping into that special ability. And I think ultimately it does lead to, uh, you know, more volatile level of play. And I think that's where, I think that's where Josh Allen is this year, man. You know, turnover worthy plays and some sacks and some special and um, it, it was almost enough. You know, if you're the Bills, you'd much rather have that than what they had at quarterback in you know, a bunch of their previous seasons. But uh, it might not always be as clean as it was last year for Allen, like we've, uh, we're saying all offseason here. So, Bucks win 33-27. to It was Brashad Perryman's only catch of the game, Sam. Finally taking advantage of all that speed, running away from, uh, from the defense for the walk-off win for the Bucs. Uh, so, the top of the NFC is really tight. Tonight's game, massive, of course, Arizona Cardinals and the Los Angeles Rams. Cardinals at 10-2 trying to hold on to that number one seed. Let's go to that other overtime game. San Francisco 49ers 26, Bengals 23. What a crazy back and forth game. This was Bengals missed a potential. That was a potential game winning field goal right at the end of regulation. Bengals get a field goal in overtime, but the Niners get the walk-off win with an incredible play by Brandon Ayuk. We mentioned on the PFF NFL Daily today. We did talk about the Niners a little bit, a little spoiler, spoiler alert. But with their playmakers now, man, with Debo Samuel back, he didn't have uh, as many touches as he had had in previous weeks, you know, coming off his injury. But George Kittle catches 13 passes for 151, including the really clutch one in the fourth quarter. Uh, I think it was the fourth quarter, right? Brandon Ayuk, six for 62, as I mentioned, that game, the, the walk-off touchdown. Man, some playmakers in San Francisco, and those guys stepped up when they needed them. Yeah, like this, that's... That was the thing um, that kind of happened in this game was at some point the 49ers 
freakish offensive playmakers just started to take over. And whether it was Debo Samuel making plays, obviously Ayuk I- made the, the key play at the end. George Kittle was making a ton. Like They just have so many players that are so hard to match up with and so hard to stop that you just saw those guys make these play these critical plays in this game time after time. And it was the difference between this game and a couple of the others that that ended up like the Bucks game, where it was it was a pretty healthy lead that somehow Buffalo were able to peg back. The 49ers never quite got out of sight in this game. And they, they always kept it just close enough that a comeback for Cincinnati when they when they were in the position, they sort of finally reached the point in the game where they're like, okay, we are now in two-minute offense, desperation, turn it over and let the quarterback run the offense mode. And as soon as they do that, the Bengals become a much better team because, like, that's, that's their best offense. Like, Joe Burrow to Jamar Chase in particular is the single best thing you have on offense. If you let them just do that more, you're going to be better. So all of a sudden, as soon as they let that, as soon as they were in a position where they were basically forced to do that, the Bengals' offense looked way better. Yeah, I mean that. So they had a fourth and five. They're down twenty to six. Fourth and five in the fourth quarter. Joe Burrow scrambling out, kind of throws a. I mean, he just kind of throws it up and away from the defensive back. Jamar Chase. Jamar Chase was moving the other direction when Burrow threw threw it, but he saw it, adjusted to it. It's really an incredible play overall. Burrow hit. Chase with another bomb early that he just could not hold on to. It was, it was originally called a touchdown and then overturned. But that connection is incredible. And I think this is this might be like the discouraging part for the Bengals because offensively, when you talk about this passing attack, this is all the stuff that I've been wanting to see. I know like T. Higgins led the team with 114 yards, but Higgins has emerged these last few weeks as a vertical and over the middle threat, CJ Azama always, you know, decides he's just going to run through people every now and again. Uh, Tyler Boyd, like they had four guys with over 50 receiving yards. Joe Burrow was making some great plays, but he also got sacked five times. And some of those were just quick pressures where he couldn't do much uh, with, couldn't do much of anything. Nick Bosa was fantastic off the edge. You know, they freed him up on stunts and you just won on the edge. Um, so for all the great stuff that happened as far as the big plays that the Bengals were able to create, a lot of negative plays in there as well. And you still only end up with 23 points, even though this offense feels uh, more explosive, right? Like you're creating all these big plays or these big play opportunities, but it just was not enough in this game. Yeah, I, I think they need to lean into this idea, though, that Joe Burrow is, is a really, really good quarterback and that connection to Chase is amazing. They, at some time, they, they seem to call plays at times as if they are dealing with a much worse quarterback than Joe Burrow. I, I think yep. they need to lean into the idea that he is their best player on offense. He is what you thought he would be. It's time to free him up and help him out by putting him in better situations and letting him be the architect of better situations late in the series, right? Remember, during Baker Mayfield's struggles in 2019, like the issue is he was facing so many third and longs because they weren't letting him make the play on first down. It was like run, run, pass on third and long. Like his job becomes easier if you lean into him on first down more. And that's the same thing with with Burrow. If you let him pass the ball more on first down, you wouldn't be in as many must-pass situations on third down. I I think they need to absolutely lean into that. And I get generally – 
they don't want to do that. Even if they did in this game specifically, there would be reasons not to in that that 49ers pass rush was legitimate and it was causing all kinds of problems. Nick Bosa had double-digit pressures. Eric Armstead had a bunch. Like They had a lot of pressure coming at Joe Burrow. But at some point, you have to trust them to be able to deal with that and make plays and get the ball out of his hands before the pressure arrives and all those kinds of things. Just like lean into it. That's, that's how you're going to be good. Uh, on the other side, Jimmy Garoppolo uh, had the other big play of the game, right? So it was the, the Niners driving. It's, tie, it's a tie game in the fourth quarter after Burrow hit Jamar Chase with another just beauty of a touchdown to tie it up. Jimmy Garoppolo throws the ball over the middle of the field, does not see Jesse Bates, who has a pick-six opportunity. This was with 24 seconds left in the fourth quarter in a tie game. Jimmy Garoppolo almost throws basically a walk-off interception. Uh, it ends up getting dropped by Bates, and then the Niners, the Niners, they got into field goal range and missed and you know eventually went in overtime. But that's another, you know, the Bengals... I, again, I know every team has them. I know every team can say this play, that play, this play, that play, whatever. The Bengals at 7-6 and six could really point to two or three plays in this season that have them in number one overall, uh, you know, number one seed contention that just, oh man, that just didn't go their way. And this is another one that they're just going to be kicking themselves for because they really had a chance to take advantage of a bad Garoppolo mistake at the end of the game. Yeah, it was, it was a two-play sequence that, that should have determined the game one way or the other and ultimately ended up not either way because uh, Robbie Gould missed, uh, missed the, the field goal. But yeah, like a, what could have been a pick six or at least a, an interception that took them deep into 49ers territory by Jesse Bates, dropped, not, not, uh, in, not picked off. And then the very next play, third and 10 from the sort of midfield, Garoppolo hits George Kittle on this like fingertips grab that not that many tight ends are coming down with moves them 20 yards puts them into field goal range and you're like oh that's the game right there a two-play sequence that could have been setting it up for a Cincinnati win or actually did set it up for a 49ers win and then it, it gold missed the field goal so they go to overtime anyway but that, like those are the margins in the NFL one play could have won you the game almost and then almost lost you the game back-to-back plays with 30 seconds left on the clock. So that moves again. The Bengals, 7-6 and six, uh, in the AFC, technically number 9 uh, in the seeding right now, but that's because, well, the Colts have the same record. The Colts are 7-6, and six, as are the Bills, as are the Browns, as are the Bengals, as are the Broncos. Five teams all tied at 7-6, and six, and then you have the 6-6-1 six, six Steelers, lurking with the number 11 seed right now so it's still wide open in the AFC but uh, it's just a it's a tough one to swallow for the Bengals um, again once again because uh, so close to you know being very much in the playoff picture and now technically they're out of it at the moment which is uh, not what I expected to see as of a couple weeks ago not just that but they would have been top of the division if they'd won this game like that's, how, yeah, also that's crazy. how close this this madness is, both in the AFC generally and in that division specifically. They they're the the difference between being out of the playoffs completely and being the division winner for Cincinnati is is that game, which as we just talked about, you can you can flip the result basically off one or two plays either way. Another um, another thing that was a real blow for them in this game, 
for some reason, Darius Phillips kept muffing pumps, punts. They yeah. got him back out two of them at least, um, which obviously you, you can't do that. No, you just uh, the special team stuff. We'll talk about the Packers in a minute because they had like a season's worth of special teams mishaps. Uh, but those are also the little things that kind of add up. Um, just to to put a bow on the Bengals thing. Remember a couple years ago, I, I mentioned about like Seattle and Pete Carroll. They have this game where. Russ only has to throw the ball 22, 23 times, and it's and it's great. It's because the running game's so good and it's so efficient. I do feel like the Bengals had a few of those games earlier in the year, and they won them. You know, those are those are good games where Joe Mixon goes off for one forty, or he, he has a breakaway thirty five, forty yarder at the end, and uh, but it's just this really efficient run first attack where Joe Burrow doesn't have to do much. And I do wonder if that's the if that's what the Bengals have been striving for too much, right? Trying to replicate those early season games, which again are successful. Those are good games. Those are games you want to win. Those games you're going to have those games during the year where you just rely on the run game. You don't have to do much through the air. But I just with what Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow can do down the field and to flip the field and to lead a comeback the way they both did together in the fourth quarter here. I just wonder if the Bengals need to get away from even striving for those Joe Mixon-led attacks and just say, look, this is Joe Burrow's team. Like, let's make this adjustment. And, and and to further that comparison, early in Russell Wilson's career, Ben Roethlisberger's career, and Tom Brady's career, all three of those guys were in run-first attacks, and Brady was in a different era, but Roethlisberger was kind of in a different era. But there were times where those like, – there were – they were a little bit their teams were more conservative with them but there was also a point where those guys became the guy and kind of took over for the most part i wonder if we need to see that earlier sooner rather than later for burrow and say look it's your team go chuck it around um, and make some plays even with all the sacks and the negative plays it's kind of a tough spot for the bengals because i do think much like the josh allen thing burrow through the air gives you the best chance to put points on the board but you also want to protect him a little bit so um, interested to see what the Bengals uh, end up doing here going forward. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with those games, the the kind of game that <laughs> that everybody strives for with Russell Wilson or Kirk Cousins or apparently Joe Burrow, like the, the dominant ground game where your quarterback only needs to put the ball in the air 18 times and you cruise. I just think that those should be games that you stumble into rather than this is the game we're trying to – you don't go into a game trying to make that happen every week. You go into a game and if it turns out – that you're dominating the team on the ground and you can put the ball, uh, you don't have to put the ball in the air very often, you can just roll at six yards per carry, then yeah, absolutely, lean into that because why? there's no downside, right? Everybody loves, uh, the, the offense loves running the ball. Offensive linemen love it. The running back obviously wants to have a big game like that. Okay, receivers might not love it, but you know they'll deal with it if they're cruising and they're winning. Everybody loves a game like that, but most of the weeks you're not going to get it. So... Going in there with the intent to try and ma- manufacture that is probably not a great way of doing it. Simply taking advantage of it when that's the way the lay, the lay of the land is, all absolutely. It feels like the issue with Seattle and Minnesota and Cincinnati is that they all go in there trying to make that happen as the game plan. Whereas if they just went in there saying, well, our best way of playing is to lean into the fact that we have an elite quarterback when he's playing at the peak of his powers, and if it turns out that we're able to crush them in the run game and, you know, average seven yards per carry, then of course we will pivot and move to a 60-40 run pass split, not the other way around. But let's at least go in assuming that we're going to have to play with our best players. 
Yeah, I'm with you on that. Let's go to uh, the other 4 o'clock games here. Los Angeles Chargers, 37. Giants, 21. Mike Glennon got the start for the Giants. Justin Herbert, uh, really nice game. Stat sheet looks beautiful. 23 of 31, 275, three touchdowns, and one of the best throws of the entire season that you'll see just before the half. An absolute dime and a bomb. And you and I were talking off air is, is Justin Herbert the only guy in the NFL that could make that throw? Probably not exactly, but it's like one of, what, three guys? Incredible throw uh, just before the half for, uh, for a long touchdown to Jalen Guyton. That throw was absolute madness. Like, it was, when you look at it again and you realize just how far the ball traveled, it's more impressive. Like, you knew it, you knew it was amazing watching it live. Um and like the just the carry he got on the ball was nuts. Like just a simple, Guyton runs right up the middle, splits the safeties, and uh, Justin Herbert sort of rolls out of the pocket under a bit of pressure, sets his feet, and fires the ball to him. Almost every single quarterback in the NFL, that's going to be a pretty badly underthrown pass, and you're going to have to rely on the fact that the receiver was wide the hell open in the first place and his ability to win it, uh, win at the catch point to make that happen. And, you know, most of the time it would work out because the safeties are desperately trying to get back in phase from a, a bad position. But not only was, not only did the pass from Herbert not ne- necessitate that at all, it was perfectly in stride. But when you look at just how freaking far it traveled, it's insane. That was at least like a 64, 65 yard pass in the air, having, you know, rolled out and only just had a chance to set his feet before he got blasted. He put the ball in the air on his own 34-yard line, and it drops into Guyton's hands at, like, the two. That, I mean, with zero, like, absolutely perfectly in stride. Okay, we know that Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen have the arm to make that happen, but that, I, I don't know if you can see, I don't know if you see that pass being completed in such a way by any other quarterback. It was also third and long. And as you mentioned, he's, he's rolling out to his right under pressure. You know, I mean, it's it wasn't – look, hitting a deep ball off of a play action and all that stuff, it, it's good. I mean, he takes touch and accuracy and all that stuff. Um, but those are like schemed up deep balls. You kind of know that's that's where you're going with the ball. Herbert is adjusting on the fly. I mean, it was – it really is incredible. Um, his other big-time throw, they did a little – it was more schemed up. It's a half-roll throwback, but it's still one of those that, like, takes advantage of his arm strength, right? When you roll – it's, uh, it's your yoink play, Sam. Um, but you're throwing back across the field a good 35, 40 yards, and he puts it right on Josh Palmer. I mean, again, we've been asking for um, been asking for the Chargers to open it up a little bit more, and uh, they, they're not doing it all the time, but you're still seeing, you're seeing some of these plays where Herbert's capable. And this isn't even like a play. The, the first one we're talking about isn't necessarily a play call thing. That's really Herbert ad-libbing and taking what should be a clear-out route on that concept and just turning it into a 59-yard touchdown, which is incredible. So a lot of good stuff from Herbert in this game. The run game was efficient for the Chargers. Uh, Mike Glennon was not good for the Giants. There wasn't really much of a – didn't have much of a chance there. And then the guy whose name we very much avoid saying and have done a good job of avoiding saying his name, right? Like he didn't play in this game. That was very sad. The player, number 33 for the Chargers. Somebody else clearly did not understand that if you mention his name out loud, you will jinx him and he will be injured again. Somebody 
somebody did that. Somebody was out there saying his name, like, as if it comes without consequences, as if there is no potential <laughs> risk to voicing the name of number 33 from the Chargers, whose name, you know, rhymes with Jerwin Dames. Somebody was out there just throwing it around. Like, there's no downside to that. And all of a sudden, boom, injured, not playing in the game. Look what you did. I hope you're aware, if you were the person that was saying his name out loud, this is, this is what you've done. You. It, you are the reason for this. That's right. You tell him, Sam. Uh, also, in true Bosa fashion, we, we mentioned Nick Bosa had a great game. So, of course, Joey Bosa had a great game, too. 90-plus pass rush grade there. One of my favorite things to do when I have when I use my PFF Elite package, all uh, you, know, you have Elite, you go to Premium Stats. Right now, you can get your 25% off using the promo code NFLPOD. One of the first things you should do is go check out the defense page, put it onto Edge Rushers, and go check out where the Bosa's rank. It, it's like they've got a family commitment to just grade in the same ballpark um i think they were weren't they one spot away from each other coming into this week sam i mean it is uh, every time you and i have to put our rankings together the pff 50 the pff 101 all this stuff it, we should just keep the boses right next to each other because the grades are always the same stylistically everything's always the same so good on joey bosa to keep up with nick this week in the uh, in the grading yeah, I mean, they are basically the same human and have been all the way through their careers. It's actually amazing how closely they grade. This, this game also had one of the funnier plays I can remember seeing when, <laughs> you know, sometimes, you know, a team has a punter that's got a bit of an arm and can deliver a pass. Um, you know, Johnny Hecker was always good at this, where you get the look, it's, it's going to be open because of the way uh, teams play punt coverage. And you just turn, fires the ball, easy completion, first down, on we go, fake punt. The Giants did it, and the punter just like <laughs> just catches the ball, turns nonchalantly, you know, delivers this this perfect pass. Only it's like four yards airmailed over his receiver. Air-mailed. It's just the most sort of casual, <laughs> just casual, terrible incompletion you're gonna see. And it's like, yeah, I mean, sometimes that doesn't go that well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, not great. <laughs> not now look, great. they were already in a hole. You know, they were 20 points down at that stage. So what They were the taking hell? a shot. It's yeah. just, it looked funny, you know? Sometimes, sometimes when a play goes wrong, it's just kind of hilarious. And this was one of those times. A good win for the Chargers. We'll have much more on the Chargers on the Wednesday show because they're playing the Chiefs in the short week on Thursday night football this week. So that should be obviously uh, one of the best games of the week. Uh, they did it without Keenan Allen. He's supposed to be back on Thursday, but you get Josh Palmer. Who I mentioned, they used them on the yoink play. They're gonna that's the that's the old like tight end throwback. Um, but they did it with Palmer from the slot. He had five catches for sixty six yards. Spread the ball around, uh, did Herbert with with Guyton, Palmer, and Mike uh, Mike Williams all getting uh, at least sixty receiving yards. So we'll have much more on the Chargers on Wednesday. They move to eight and five, and uh, Chiefs are looming for the top uh, battle for the top of the AFC West on Thursday night. Got to touch on Denver and the Lions, thirty-eight to ten. The Lions uh, not only are they, you know, depleted as a roster from a talent standpoint, they're also depleted with COVID and flu and all sorts of sickness uh, flowing through the building in Detroit. So they're just outmanned, and uh, it looked like it as Denver rolled thirty-eight to ten. Uh, rest in peace, Demarius Thomas, just uh, passed away this week, thirty-three-year-old receiver. 
former receiver for the Broncos. Uh, they came out with 10 men on the field uh, in honor of Demarius Thomas. They had a uh, number 33 decals and kind of dedicated the game to Demarius Thomas, a, a tragic uh, death this past week in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, incredibly sad to, to hear about him. And I mean, obviously, anytime a guy passes away that young, 33, it's it's insane. But when you heard about you know, Demarius Thomas is a great player and losing anybody that age would be tragic. But I, I don't think I can remember a player or a death um, when the the sort of tributes that poured out were all so universally identical in terms of praising how good he was as a person, not as a, a player. You know, Peyton Manning, I think, summed it up by saying that like he was a better person than he was a player, and he was a Hall of Fame player. That kind of tells you everything you need to know about the guy. And all these former teammates were just telling these stories about how great he was with their kids and how he treated them as if they were his kids and just, you know, what an amazing human being he was um, for him to to pass away at that age is just is a blow for someone that never even met the guy you know I can't even imagine what it would be like if you were one of those teammates that was close to him and that had that connection and relationship and, and all those kinds of things so horrible situation for for Denver and for his family and for everybody involved um, and it was you know, I think it was a I think they did well in terms of the, the tribute stuff, the, the 88 on the field, the decals, the, the 10 men at the start, all those kinds of things. I think it was a, a, a nice tribute to him. Yeah, it definitely was. And um, look, again, another game where it's like, all right, I don't know what. Uh, oh, geez, just fell in my X chair. Uh, don't know what else to add as far as um, the outcome, right? I mean, if you know Denver in a blowout kind of expected there, I think. We, uh, did we both take Denver? I don't know who we took. Well, certainly at the point where Detroit are down 18 players from COVID right. and flu and those kinds of things. And this was the game that we just been talking about, right, where you get to run the ball at will and the quarterback barely needs to, to attempt to pass. Teddy Bridgewater, 18 of 25 for 179 yards, two touchdowns, like a passer rating of 119 because – Melvin Gordon and Javante Williams, you know, combined for what that 39 carries, 180 yards ish, uh, a bunch of touchdowns on the ground. Like they just, they had that kind of game where they were able to dominate rushing the ball. They didn't need much from the quarterback and they didn't get that much from the quarterback. And Detroit, they just didn't have enough to, to hang. Like they were keeping it close for a while. And then again, the, when you don't have the margin for error, when you're an underdog, when you're not as good as the opposition, the one thing you cannot do is turn the ball over and, and fumble it away or, or throw interceptions. And the, the Lions did that a couple of times, at which point game just spirals out of control. Beautiful interception by Justin Simmons, diving pick of, uh, of Jared Goff. Uh, you mentioned the rushing attack, Javante Williams. Uh, so Gordon, Melvin Gordon ran for two touchdowns. Javante Williams had one, and he caught one. So um, it is it is nice when when Denver's offense is rolling, even if it is just you know behind the rushing attack. Um, you see some explosive plays with Jerry Judy in there. He had a nice twenty-one yarder that was you know he always kind of flashes that that special ability that he has. You've got the two-headed monster at running back. You've got Noah Fant and Tim Patrick. Uh, it, it was the opposite of what we saw from Denver last Sunday night against the Kansas City Chiefs. Now you're going from a Chiefs defense, which is hot and looking like you know one of the best in the league, 
to the Lions defense, but good game for the Broncos to get back on track at home and just kind of take care of business against an uh, outmanned Lions team. And so the Broncos, as I mentioned earlier, one of those five teams that are all seven and six. Um, I believe the tiebreakers put them at the number 10 seed, so the lowest of those other seven and six teams. But there's at least an opportunity here. There's at least a path for the Broncos to uh, sneak into the playoffs. So they're lurking. It's been like the story of the Broncos season. They look bad, write them off. Oh, look, impressive win. Get them back in there. Uh, so they continue to be a bit of a roller coaster ride over in Denver. Yeah, and I, but I think this was another game where, um, like, this is if we talked about before. There's like, there's no reason to buy in to Jacksonville and Urban Meyer and anything that's going on there. Every week, I think you get reasons to buy in to Dan Campbell and what's happening in Detroit. And like, this was a reasonably close game for certainly the first half. And then, you know, those critical uh, turnovers started to happen. The running back fumbles it away. Denver score. All of a sudden, it's getting out to a 14-point lead. It's, it's kind of starting to get out of control. But then did, uh, Detroit, I think, start to do the, the right thing. They... You know, the, the Broncos have just scored a touchdown. They're now in a bit of a hole. Detroit has the ball. It's third and a mile. They pick up almost all of it. They get back to, like, fourth and two. And so they go for it, right? Okay, it's your own 33-yard line, but you're down two scores at this point. The game is starting to get away from you. You're missing 18 players. You need to be aggressive. You need to try and keep this drive alive. If you don't, if you turn it over, if you punt it away, they're probably going to score again, and you're just – you're never getting that back, right? So you had the, the big play. You get fourth and two. They go for it. And then they just, again, they catch the crappy end of that. It's a batted pass, turnover on downs. Denver is set up deep in Detroit territory. They score a touchdown. And that's, I mean, that's the game at that point. But the fact that Dan Campbell was willing to make that call, I think, is a good thing for Detroit because he was aware of the dynamics of play that, you know, there's no... There's no virtue to punting this ball away right now, right? We are already down two scores. We're the underdog. We're less talented based off all the players that we have available to us. The only shot we have is picking up this fourth and two and keeping this drive alive and maybe being able to claw back one of these touchdowns and, you know, hang in this game. If, if he just punted it away, I would have – I mean, that, that was a – if you're one of the players for Detroit, I think you take heart in, A, the confidence he had that you would pick that up, and, B – his understanding that that was the right thing to do. Oh, now you're into the touchy-feely, what do the players uh, care about it? Just trying to maximize win probability, Sam. But uh, the the downside is like the final scoreboard, right? You know, that they're down two scores at the time, all of a sudden, oh, now it's 31 to 10, then it's 38 to 10, and it looks like you got blown out, whatever. Um, but I think that's the nature of it, right? You're trying to maximize win probability your chance of winning the game the downside is there are going to be blowouts that was the chargers ravens game earlier this season they were probably maximizing win probability but when you don't get it you're maximizing blowout probability the other way but particularly Um, particularly for a team like detroit like who cares like you are a massive underdog in this game you're probably going to lose at which point like the magnitude of the defeat what difference does that make the fact that you were actually giving yourself the best chance to pull off a ridiculous upset is the important thing whether or not it panned out is kind of besides the point like if you what did the spread end up being at the start of this game like if it was likely to be a double digit loss whatever you did so whether it's a 10 point loss or a 28-point loss, I, I don't 
I don't think it matters. Like the longer you can keep, the longer you can stave off the relatively inevitable defeat, the better. Or the longer you can give yourself a chance of executing some ridiculous upset, the better. And I think that Dan Campbell is doing a really good job this season of consistently doing that. So the opposite end of the spectrum was Matt Nagy punting for the for the Bears. They lose forty five to thirty. He punts uh, early in the fourth quarter, fourth and one, own territory. The the fear there, of course, is you don't get it. Aaron Rodgers is just going to score a touchdown, right? But the other fear should be when you punt it. First off, he almost gets away with it. But when you did punt it and the Packers get the ball, they go thirteen yards for seven, uh, seven thirteen plays for seventy one yards, taking up almost nine minutes of the clock. And the Bears at the time were down two scores, Sam. So uh, there's a lot of other stuff that happened in this game, but this just kind of reminded me of it, the way you were talking about the Dan Campbell decision. Nagy goes for it. It doesn't go for it. Fourth and one, they punt. This is the play where the punt goes off Amari Rogers' helmet. It's recovered by the Bears. It looks like maybe the Bears got away with it, but it's negated. that play is negated by a penalty. Then they have to punt at fourth and six, and the Packers just... Uh, drive the length of the field in this game the Bears needed every a a special teams mishap in every phase of the game by the Packers to stay in it tap passes to Jakeem Grant incredible punt returns from Jakeem Grant all of the things that the Bears needed to just hang tough and have a lead 24 to 14 at one point but didn't matter the Packers still just uh just too good just a much better team Aaron Rodgers uh vintage effort again here against the Bears (laughs) this was such a bizarre game because I mean, Chicago put up 30 points. They had all kinds of bounces of the ball go their way. The, for a while, it looked like the Packers weren't really showing up, and, Detroit, and, and Chicago absolutely was showing up early in the game. You know, Chris and the, the Sunday night football broadcast was all about the Aaron Rodgers, I own you thing from the last time they played and how – you know, the Bears were desperate to try and prove that wrong with the inevitability of the, of the facts that it's true. Rodgers does own the Bears throughout his career. And there was this air of inevitability that as well as Chicago was doing and as, as much as the ball is going their way earlier in the game and they, they kept every time they needed a play, they got a play and they put points on the board. It just felt like the longer this goes, the more Rodgers is going to keep going, put up points, and eventually if you don't keep pace, you're not going to win. He's just going to overtake you. And as much as they put up the 30 points, they had all these plays bounce their way, the Chicago Bears offense averaged a negative EPA per play and a pretty significantly negative EPA per play. As much as it was like, you know, we've we've put up a lot of points, there have been some big plays – they weren't actually playing that well. Like, they just got a couple of huge plays, bounced their way, or, or not even bounced their way, but, like, you know, the pass to um, Demir Bird out of the backfield just got an isolated matchup, and boom, you hit a fast guy, and he's gone. That was kind of how this offense was surviving, and eventually that just dried up because those plays don't keep happening. Yeah, th- th- it was those couple big plays. So it was uh, Bird over the middle for 54 yards where he runs through the defense. Jakeem Grant, well, it was a tap pass, right? I mean, he just gets it on the uh, the end-around tap pass. And they were both really Fort. nice schemed plays. Like, they were great they were. play designs. They exploited a hole in the defense. But you're not going to do that five, six times a game. Like, a defense, you're not going to find the matchup that exploits that five, six times a game. A defense isn't going to give you that much up five, six times a game. So... If that was basically the only way you're moving the ball, and it pretty much was, 
at some point that was going to stop happening. And if you can't stop the Packers offense consistently, again, you're going to stall and they're going to keep on going. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those games where if you're, you're watching the Bears as double-digit underdogs, if they're going to pull off the upset, it's like, all right, those we need a tap pass to Jakeem Grant for a 46-yard touchdown. We need this open pass uh, to Bird. We need was a 97-yard uh, punt return by Jakeem Grant. Like, if you said the Bears are going to pull the upset, I'd say, yeah, all of those things will probably need to happen. Plus, Justin Fields is going to have to take care of the ball and just convert enough first downs. And I thought he, I thought Fields did a nice job with his legs. He was the leading rusher for the Bears with 74 yards, most of them on scrambles. Um, but he also threw a pick six to Rasul Douglas. So it was while while the Bears had uh, had the game in their favor. Uh, you know, and, and, and these good things are happening for them in this potential upset in Green Bay. Fields leaves one, you know, stares it down, leaves it back in behind, and uh, Rasul Douglas takes it back for an interception for a touchdown. Uh, those plays obviously were huge. And then the Jakeem Grant play, it's like, all right, maybe the, the Bears are really hanging tough here. They did get up to uh, 24 to 14, but the uh, and that was late in the first half. So it's like, okay, the Bears could go in to the half, up by 10, or at least up by 7, right? The Packers get the ball, Rodgers has just under two minutes, and they but they just drove down the field easily before he hits uh, Devontae Adams for a 38-yarder for a touchdown. So then it's only a three-point game. Or no, the Bears came back. It was a six-point game at the half, whatever. Um, but the Bears, every time they made a big play, were kind of letting the Packers back in, and whether it was because of the pick six or because their defense couldn't hold anybody. Yeah. Um, I mean... Yeah, that was basically the side. Like Chicago's offense relied too much on big plays, and they didn't have the defense made a couple of big plays early. You know, they they sacked Rodgers a couple of times earlier in the game, and they were pulling out the uh, the discount double check belt celebration, which always felt like a risky a risky move against Rodgers. Not smart, Robert Quinn. Then they stopped making those plays, and like that was an issue because because Chicago's offense. As much as they had a few big ones themselves, they weren't they weren't moving the ball consistently well. And if you stall out, if you don't stop the Packers, you're just you're you're a sitting duck. Um, I thought so. This was another game where Chicago's offensive line didn't hold up particularly well. Jason Peters goes down. We finally get to see uh, Tevin Jenkins come in. I thought he played all right, but. Um, you know, given the fact that he was basically being thrust in there at zero notice. Did, did were you impressed by the fact that Justin Fields didn't allow this to kind of collapse and it, like the, it didn't turn into the Browns game from earlier in the season? Yes, um, because the actual pass blocking grade from the Bears is going to be a disaster. And Fields was only sacked twice. I thought he had a few nice escapes there. Uh, you know, he definitely turned some potential negative plays into positives. And and again, I think my my you know my criticism of Fields has always been. Uh, you know, taking too many of those negative plays, too many sacks, and not getting rid of the ball quickly enough. I thought he did a little bit better job there. But I think your point, too, was like outside of those couple schemed plays, I don't know if this offense was creating much else. There was a lot of uh, a lot of like just missed plays. You know, Fields just missed uh, Darnell Mooney along the sideline for a big play where he just landed out of bounds. And um, it, it was there was a few of those just missed plays and then just a lot of underneath stuff that wasn't going anywhere besides Bird and Grant, right? So um, overall, it felt a little disjointed from the Bears, but I think, you know, to your point, they were working with, uh, this was one of the worst pass blocking grades for any offensive line 
this year. And, you know, I think Fields did what he could with it. An up-and-down performance from him and much of what we've come to expect from him so far this year as a rookie. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to be, given the situation that he's in right now, I think you have to be at least encouraged by what we're seeing from him. There There is some kind of train of development that, you know, again... If the entire season had kind of been the way of that Browns game, I think things could have spiraled out of control pretty badly. But I think you are seeing positive signs. The one other thing I want to say about the Packers is A.J. Dillon. He had a long carry of 11, but he does the toughness that he brings to the table. Going back to that Brandon Staley speech earlier in the year where he was talking about, why do we run the ball? We want to make defenses shed blocks and this and that. I'm starting to believe not so much the body blows theory, But when you're trying to stop the Packers, the different things that you need to stop. So the first number one, okay, you got to stop. You got to try to slow down Aaron Rodgers because he's great. You got to try to stop Devontae Adams because he's as great as it gets at receiver. And you've got Alan Alan Lazard and his his size. And and no matter who's playing tight end for the Packers, even with Bob Tunyon hurt, you see you have Deguara and Mercedes Lewis both you know almost combined for 100 yards. Like they get production out of their tight ends right so the passing game's tough but you also have this rushing attack where aaron jones makes the most of his run blocking always and aj Dillon is like the body blows guy right i mean it, it takes a whole different skill set for your team to slow down aaron Rodgers and Devontae adams in the passing attack as it does slowing down aj Dillon in the rushing attack and i think it's a i think it's just a nice complimentary piece i'm trying to be as uh diplomatic as possible here by saying the run you know the run matters here the running back matters but don't you feel that when AJ Dillon has the ball and he catches the ball well out of the backfield I feel it feels better if you're the Packers I think in your offense that you have different answers and you could bring something different to the table offensively than what they've had historically I mean look I think there's value in having a dude that's 250 pounds capable of carrying the football at any given moment and you know if if, whether Regardless of what's working, it's an option that wasn't there before. When you had a backfield that was um, Aaron Jones and, and Williams, the, you're not, nobody's frightened of tackling those guys. You, okay, Aaron Jones has the ball. You don't want to look like an idiot and miss a tackle. But nobody's concerned about sticking their head in there and making a physical hit late in the game. If you have A.J. Dillon carrying the ball, that's 250 pounds you need to pay attention to because if you don't, you get run the hell over. And... I don't know how much value there is to that, but there's something. Like that is a that is a threat in this offense that wasn't there beforehand. Um, and I don't know how valuable that is, but it is it is there is there there is a value to it. Yeah, completely agree. So different uh, different feel for that Packers offense. They got the closer, AJ Dillon. All right, man. I think that's all the games. Do we cover everything? Yeah, I think so. Looks good. Well, we appreciate everybody for tuning in. Don't forget, NFL Pod, 25% off using the promo code NFL Pod right now. All the games are coming in over at pff.com. Whether you have Edge or Elite, you can start to see yesterday's grades, the updated season grades. It's all 25% off using the promo code NFL Pod. And then Sam might actually give you a jersey too if you do that and send him a DM at pff underscore Sam if you sign up. And uh, you're going to give away what? A jersey of uh, anyone's choice? Yeah. A jersey of the winner's choice. The winner. Right. Uh, so if I won, I would pick a Mark Brunel vintage away Jaguars jersey. I might send you a DM, right? Now. I have uh, checked your history, and you have never paid PFF a cent for any product. 
That is, that is true. That is true. Once, uh, yeah, once it became a subscription service, I uh, joined the company. Yep, not a single cent we've gotten out of you. Nothing. All right, so I'm not eligible, but you might be. So go sign up using the promo code NFLPOD. Send Sam some evidence, and maybe you can win uh, your own Mark Brunel jersey or whatever you want. Follow the uh, Twitter account um, at, what is it, PFF NFL Pod. We yes. are We're going to get this thing to 1,000 followers and then, you know, onwards and upwards. But if you get there... You will. Everybody who follows us is eligible to win this uh, this book, Super Bowl Blueprints, with Bill Polian and Vic Carucci. Our friend Bill Polian. Go check out the Wednesday episode for the Bill Polian story as well. Last Wednesday. It's also on the uh, it's on the Twitter account. You scroll down, you find the video. It's there. That's another. Uh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Go go listen to it on Twitter. Look at us getting into the social media game. Very. Uh, very advanced here on the PFF NFL podcast. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Enjoy Monday Night Football. Cardinals and Rams should be a great one. And we'll be back on Wednesday reviewing that and previewing Thursday Night Football and answering your emails on Wednesday. So we'll see you then. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.